Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, we get a little ambitious this week. This is a doozy. Let me explain. I'm a big Joe Jackson fan. I love Joe Jackson. I love all, all the different phases of his career. Some more than others. But anyway, uh, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. But he's a very creative, very complicated artist. And I thought, what if you could really tell the Joe Jackson story, but you could tell it through the people that he collaborated with. And this idea, I gotta say, was inspired by one of our listeners, Rob Disner. So we are talking to three consecutive guitarists that worked with Joe very closely for from about the late 70s into the early 90s. So obviously all of the 80s. Here's the story. So these guys are Gary Sanford, Vinnie Zumo, and Tom Teeley. And I'll tell you more about Vinny and Tom when we get to their sections of this podcast. But anyway, Gary Sanford was the original guitarist. He and Dave Houghton and Graham Maybe and Joe made up the Joe Jackson band in the late 70s. He put out, he worked on those first three Joe Jackson albums, Look Sharp, I'm the Man, and Beat Crazy. And then Joe decides to go a different way. And that's when Jump and Jive and the No Guitars Night and Day happen. And so the original band kind of dissolves at that point after the three albums. But Gary was there for the, from the beginning. So we get to know how that band came to be, how those songs came to be, his recollections of those days. You'll notice Gary is a very, very, uh, he keeps all of this stuff very much at kind of at arm's length. He's moved on. And this was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, really. Even though the band, the original band came back together in the early 2000s, for a reunion and put out the album volume four. We talk about that as well. But anyway, so this is what it was like working with Joe on that music through the eyes of Gary Sanford. And then we also find out what Gary did after the Joe Jackson experience ended. Okay. That's his story. He called me from London. I'll tell you about the others later. Well, for starters, uh, I have been a huge Joe Jackson fan for most of my life. And uh, I would have been the right age when Stepping Out was a big hit. And that's, I, I know you weren't in the band at that time, but I remember so well seeing him on Saturday Night Live, which is a show we have here in the States, you know. And uh, he was kind of awkward looking. He didn't look like a rock star, but yet his music was so good. And uh, so from there, I just have gone back and have and acquired every note of Joe Jackson movie uh, music I can get my hands on. It's all so great. Now, I want to say that because about 12 or 13 years ago, I read his book, Stranger Than Fiction, 
which yep. I know probably tells a lot of your story. And to be honest, I don't remember it very well. So forgive me if I ask you things and you're like, well, that's in the book. I, uh, I read it. It's been a long time and I don't remember it. And of course, I didn't read it back then knowing that I would ever talk to you one day. So uh, yeah. anyway, so forgive me no, if I I've never, cover I've that. I've never read the book, so I don't know what is, okay. what's in there. Oh, well, good. Well, then we'll we'll rediscover this stuff together. So let's go back to the beginning. I mean, I from what I can remember, he uh, started out with a band called Edmund Bear, I believe. And I don't know Ed, if that included Edward Bear, yeah. Edward Bear. And I don't know if that included you or how did you guys come into contact with each other? I lived in London and Joe was in Portsmouth. And one of his friends, I think from school, uh, called Drew Barfield, uh, moved to London to go to um, Goldsmiths Art College. And that's where I met Drew at Goldsmiths Art College. I, I'm, I met Joe through Drew. Hmm. And Joe would come up and jam with us in London. And um, and then we started going down and playing on his demo tapes, mm. demo songs. So um, we did a, quite a few demos uh, before the Look Sharp demo. Mm. Then the, the the Look Sharp demo was obviously the last demo mm -hmm. I did with him. Right. Uh, that's where I met Dave, Dave Houghton. Mm -hmm. uh, I've met Joe uh, Graham before because Graham had played on his other demos. Okay. And so that's the first time we all met. And I played on about five or six, but probably half of the half of the tracks on the Look Sharp demo. Okay. That's how we met, really. We hadn't been a band before that. We okay. hadn't been in any bands. I, mean, I don't even know if Dave Houghton had been in a band with Joe. It was just, it was just Graham as his right-hand man. He yeah. always has been, you know. Uh-huh. Was it always you guys sort of supporting Joe's vision or was it at ever at any point, maybe in the early days, was it a democracy at all? You know? No. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we had a similar vision. I mean, I mean, um, punk had come along and, um, we'd, you know, we'd all shaken everything up. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I had a little punk band myself, mm. Um, was was well into that. That was kind of my my kind of music, my vibe at the time. When Joe asked me to sort of play on his, you know, stuff, but uh, but Joe was just a, such a great writer, such a great arranger mm -hmm. that um, you know there wasn't really much room for for uh, mm -hmm. you know like it was he was so quick and so prolific that um, he just kind of funneled along really. You know? Yeah, yeah. One thing I was noticing in um, going back and listening to those early albums with you to get ready to talk is that you know so often a band's backbone is often the rhythm section you know the bass mm -hmm. and the and the bass and the drums are driving everything this is in no way any offense to uh dave at all but i noticed that you and graham your riffs and his he's one of the best bass players ever but the way you two are kind of intertwined with one another feels almost like a bigger driver than the rhythm section does and i'm not a musician so maybe i have this completely wrong but your riffs, and I don't know if you came up with those or Joe did or whatever, are so integral to so many of those songs.
Well, what, what you got to realize, I mean, Joe being a piano player, when he when he first played me all the stuff in the beginning, he had the guitar parts basically in his right hand, and he's and the bass parts, uh, sorry, guitar parts in his right hand, and the bass mm-hmm. parts in his left hand. Mm-hmm. So when he played the piano and the, the songs on the piano, mm-hmm. I mean, there there were the the basic parts were there. Hmm. So um, that's probably why, you know, it's just why the guitar and bass probably works so well together, probably. That's probably true. Yeah. I was curious, especially, and we'll go album by album, but on that first album, Look Sharp, is there is there a song or a moment on that album that you feel particularly proud of or take ownership of, you know? Well, the only thing that I really had free, well, not free, I, I had, I mean, it wasn't like, um, well, I say free reign was the wrong mm-hmm. kind of expression, I suppose, really, but... But um, when it comes to like soloing or the, the little instrumental bits in the middle, I mean, that is pure me. You know, mm. it's just um, like, uh, um, you know, Got the Time or um, I'm the Man. I know that was on the second album. You know, I'm trying to kind of envision what the dynamic is in that in a situation like this. Joe being, he he does what he wants. He's a singular artist. You know, he has always for 40 years now done exactly what he felt like doing. Uh, didn't care, you know, whether it was popular or not. It seemed like it's what was in his mind. And yeah. so I'm trying to imagine what a room full of guys are feeling as they are working with someone like that. Is it invigorating that creativity? Is it like, yeah, this is we're on to something here. This guy is going to lead us to the promised land, or does it feel <laughs> a little, you know, stifling? Like, man, I have ideas too, and I can't get them out. You know? Yeah. No. No. It's. Well, I mean, as I said in the early days, we were we were friends. I know I'd known Joe for a, for you know a year before that. It wasn't like working with if like someone like Vinny maybe when they worked with Joe he was already a star mm. to me he was just a friend of Drew's mm. from Portsmouth mm-hmm. so he wasn't anything special mm-hmm. um and we all had the same as I said you know we it was like yeah I liked his music and it was that mm-hmm. was good you know we had a great vibe in the band you know he put together a good band he wasn't a dictator or anything but okay. you know I sort of appreciated his music and his arrangement, but you know, we were just mates really, you yeah. know, I don't know if that frustrated him a bit because mm. 
because I, you know, didn't actually sort of um, treat him like a superstar or anything. Mm -hmm. You know, he was just he was just Joe from Portsmouth. You know, sure, sure. Were there other artists? I mean, that time such a furtive time in especially British rock music that new wave punk. Uh, all that stuff that's starting to happen in the late 70s around England, thats that in the 80s are just, you know, my favorite part of music. Are you, if you hadn't have hitched your wagon to Joe, were there other bands or other artists that you were working with or aware of at the time where it might have worked out differently with one of them? I don't know. See, I mean, I, I am very much a, a punk mentality. I mean, I wasn't searching for fame and fortune. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I was just a, sort of guitar slinger you know just sort of yeah. playing music for the love of playing music and you know i had a great little band with like drew and um tony kelly and steve tatler sort of uh before and we were doing some really good music then uh then i we i i kind of left the band <laughs> for for, okay. um, for for some reason i sort of just drifted around i sort of really enjoyed sort of the punk stuff that was going on i formed a little punk band and i just loved the fact that punk had smashed the music mm -hmm. business to pieces yeah and i yes you know like we're yeah. all you know it's brought it's a real leveler uh -huh. everything is now back to to what it should be you know you know i sort of hated the fact that there's superstars and mm -hmm. you know like the business was so run by the record companies and you you know you, you you know i mean today it's so much better because everything is a little cottage industry and everybody can make their own music you know like i'm doing and you know without any expectations of doing anything we can still put stuff out there you know it's all mm -hmm. free it's all free it's it's just great it's the way mm -hmm. it should be but back then it was so stifling huh. um so so you know i i always just playing music with whoever was around it was good at the time, I had no, you know, expectations of anything really. Yeah, I had my little punk band, and I said to Joe, oh, "When he got when he got the recording contract, I didn't know what to expect." Uh -huh. And I said, "Well, I'll come and play with you as long as it doesn't take up too much of my time." <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then, then like three years later, it's like, "Oh my God, what happened?" <laughs> yeah. <I bet. laughs> so let's talk about that. You know, Look Sharp comes out, and uh, it's a big deal. You know. And your life changes. You like it or not, you're not the you know little punk guy that doesn't care about what happens anymore. You're in a successful band that's part of the mach machine, and you're so. One of my friends, one of my listeners and friends, is a guy named Rob Disner, and he's been po uh, posting a lot of old videos of you guys. And yep. uh, you, in fact, he's the one who suggested I get in touch with you. Yeah. And watching a lot of those old videos, I mean. You guys were a tight band, but you're going everywhere. How how does that feel? That shock to your system of like we're a big, we're selling lots of records, we're touring all over the world, we're meeting our heroes. <clears throat> how does this feel? Well, it happens so fast. I mean, like for example, we did a like a four week residency at uh, the Hope and Anchor in Islington, mm -hmm. and the first week we played there, there was like ten people there. <laughs> Uh, by the third week, it was sold out and people were queuing around the block to get in. Nice. Um, and that's just typical of the whole of how it all happened. It, it just happened so fast. Yeah. You know, as I said, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I knew Joe was a good musician, but I didn't know how how big he was going to be. It was just like, you know, you know as I said, like I thought Drew was a better songwriter and you know, better singer and everything. Mm -hmm. And when it all started to happen, it happened so fast. 
and you just you didn't have time to think about it it was just like oh my god you know like mm-hmm. oh we're playing here oh we're mm-hmm. backing this person mm-hmm. oh now we're headlining oh you know like <laughs> and we went to america we had the um the tour of america half of it booked we we went from new york to la mm-hmm. by the time we got to la um they'd booked the return half you know from la back to new york <laughs> and you know the venues went from i don't know 100 seaters to to 400 seaters i don't know i can't remember exactly how big they were but but it happened it just happened so fast you know you didn't have i mean we just went with it i mean it's always the music that's the music was good Mm -hmm. we we were looked after um we we never really struggled we didn't have to we didn't have spend too long driving around in vans and Mm. and uh you know doing all the hard work we got a tour bus pretty much straight away mm-hmm. and life was life was good you know but life was always good on stage you know we we just yeah. had a good chemistry we just you know played our socks off we loved sure. it good what can you say when when, when people are loving it you know you, <laughs> it's so true <laughs> yeah what uh is there was there a moment did you meet a hero did you have an interaction with somebody where you're like i just talked to so and so. I mean, where does is there a story like that that leaps to mind about those early days? Uh, early days, no. I mean, uh, I remember um, Debbie Harry coming up to uh. me. We were in New York and we went to a wrestling match, um, <laughs> Madison Square Gardens, and she was there apparently too. Mm. And we were in this club afterwards, and all of a sudden she was standing beside me and she started talking to me, mm. and that was a that was a bit weird. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, we met we met several people, but most of them spoke to Joe, not me. You know, okay. like um, Iggy Pop, David ah, Bell. You, you know, we're in the same places as us. When I saw yeah. them, but and uh, I mean, I, I suppose the 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 biggest hero of mine that we met was when we did the Jules Holland. Um, oh yeah, later uh, with Jules Holland. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, we were playing Jules Holland. And Stevie Winwood was was playing, oh, yeah. and I I just had to go up to him and say, look, you know, I know this is really uncool, but I've got to say <laughs> that I'm a huge fan, yeah. you know. And yeah. he was just so so, you know, yeah, yeah, man, you know, yeah, yeah. You know. We had a little chat. That yeah. was probably, I mean, I mean, I'm pretty shy, really. Uh-huh. I don't really at all go up to people, but I had to go and say hello to him. But that was in the later days, not the, yeah. not the early days. Yeah. Okay. That's so funny. I love Steve Winwood too. I would have, yep. I would have gone nuts. I would have done the exact same thing you did. So, <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Um, one of the things, one thing that did that I do remember from reading Joe's book that surprised me then, but made more sense after I read it, is that apparently, if I remember correctly, he looked to a band like Steely Dan as an influence back then. Yeah. Do you remember that? Were you influenced by Steely Dan? Oh yeah, we all listened to Steely Dan they're good guitar players yeah. playing cool stuff over you know um well-written studio stuff i mean i never saw them live or anything like that but yeah they were a great influence for, okay. for all of it you know, that i can think of and joe's music before look sharp was you could tell the influence mm-hmm. of um of steely dan i mean it's that's the one influence that i think comes through in his music earlier maybe maybe mm-hmm. later as well i don't know but uh, you know but he He's that kind of musician. He's yeah. he's he's so good, and so is Becker and whatever they're called. Fagan, yeah, I agree. I uh, when you first read that and you think about those early punk days, it could they couldn't be further apart from each other. But when you factor yeah. in, I think anyway, Joe's 
commitment to kind of musicianship and precision and um, getting it right and having it be there's some diversity in there it's de it's deceptively it's more deceptive it's not as simple as you think those are those seem to me as sort of hallmarks of steely dan it made more sense that they would be more of a brotherhood than i would have guessed originally you know so going into the second album i'm the man it's still a great album it may not rise to the same you know major benchmark levels of look of look sharp but it's still a super good album any fun memories of making that did you feel was the were the creative juices continuously flowing or was it arduous at all how did it feel yeah no it was sort of a sort of a continuation i mean i think a lot of the stuff it was probably might have even been written before uh, you know around the same time as look sharp or mm. shortly after and it felt like a, a continuation joe had a lot of material but the funny thing about that was we recorded it in this really small studio near Fulham somewhere. I can't mm. remember the name of the studio. Like the studio door had a gap underneath it. So mm. so that like Dave Kirschenbaum sitting in the in the control room had to check the sound back after we played something because there wasn't a complete um separation of sound between the really? the studio and the, the thing. Yeah, yeah. So it it was kind of working a little bit blind. It was really weird. But <laughs> but we just so the thing is with the Joe Band, we we always wanted to play live. Everything was as live as we could get it. Mm -hmm. Everything was was um, recorded live with with this well, no overdubs apart from Joe obviously at the mm -hmm. what piano part or something on afterwards because he, you know, he would sing, sing, and I, I, half the time I think we kept the live vocal from the um, from the original tape too. Okay, and we just wanted that sort of that 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 vibe of a live concert, a live yeah. show. So, I, I mean, I don't know whose idea it was to use this really small studio, but it, I thought it was, it was quite ridiculous, really, uh -huh. you know, but, you know, it but, worked. Uh, yeah, it worked, yeah. It yeah, good. okay. Um, it's Different for Girls is one of the loveliest songs ever written.
it makes sense in Joe's overall canon, but maybe at a time when punk was still sort of reigning supreme, might have been viewed as a little bit out of step. Were there any was there any story involved or any kind of anything interesting relating to him coming to you guys and saying, I have a piano ballad that I feel really strongly about that I want to put in the middle of our album. What do you guys think? Do you remember anything like that? No, there was no no problem with playing okay. different for girls. Uh, as soon as he played it, uh, I just thought, oh, this is, you know, this is good. I mean, as much as I, um, I'm a bit more of the punk of the band, um, it was still magical, you know, it's just like two notes. Oh, oh this yeah. works, this, this is okay. But on the radio was my favorite. My, yeah. my favorite. I love playing on, on, on your radio. Yes. That oh, was really... so good. So good. Um, can you remember, to, I mean, I, you guys are out on tour. You alluded to this earlier. You know, when you go for, out at first, you're opening for bands you like. And then on the way back, there are, other bands are opening for you. Can you remember any kind of interactions from back then? Who were you touring with? No one, really. And I mean, we I'm talking about in the very early days, like, like in London, we played the Nashville Rooms. And we were supporting. Uh, sorry, you excuse my memory. It's not so that's okay. Good. That's okay. If you don't remember, it's no big deal. It was the guy from Thin Lizzy, one of the guitar players. Um, okay, then the third album, Be Crazy, and this is the third album to be released in about eighteen months. lot of music to put out in such a short time you know yeah yeah well things had changed by the third album i mean um joe was was already changing you know he, mm -hmm. he didn't want to sort of 
you know, if you know Joe, you know he likes change. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he doesn't like to be be the do the same thing all the time. Yeah. And um, uh, I think he was really fed up with. Um, I mean, I can't really speak for him, but mm-hmm. but that's the way it seemed. You know, Joe produced the third album, so Dave Kirschenbaum was out of the picture, and so it was a completely different feel, a completely different vibe. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was it was a it was a change yeah. um you know as much people as a lot of people wanted joe not to change and him to just carry on the same old um right thing yeah that was his uh, the beginning of his change so it felt different the songs were different it was different vibe different everything about it you know mm-hmm. yeah um, it's starting to uh, implement some influences of dub, dub reggae, which you know the Clash is doing that. So many bands are doing that back then. Yeah, um, well, we we all that we reggae was all always a sort of big influence for all of us. I mean, really, I mean, me and Joe. I remember sort of Joe and I were, were always playing like reggae albums from day one. You know, I mean, before I joined up with him in Camberwell, you know, you go around to Joe's place and he'd be playing reggae records. He'd come around to mine and go, Oh, you know, that's so, yeah. we just, we love, love reggae, you know? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we got to do that reggae album with, um, Prince Lincoln Thompson, don't you? Mm. No, what's that? We're, we're Prince Lincoln Thompson, the Royal Rasses. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we did, we did half the album with him. Oh, he, uh, you mean he's on beat crazy? No, 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 no. We no. did a on on Prince Prince Lincoln's Oh yeah, natural woman. Oh yeah, reggae <laughs> but you know with, a, with him that, that was really good i oh. really loved that that was that was so cool i'll look that up i didn't even know that existed very nice yeah. okay yeah, yeah. so are you feeling is this an acrimonious split or does joe does joe tell you like you know i'm thinking of going a different way and i'm not going to need you anymore or do you does he just not call or is it obvious you're not needed what's the split like well dave Dave Houghton was the, um, initiated it. He um, he said basically he'd had enough, and mm. and Dave Dave left. Why? What did he have enough of? Success? 
<laughs> I don't know. You have to speak to David. Okay. About that. Okay. I don't know. It all got a bit intense. Mm. You know, touring was hard. I don't know maybe his private life was a bit harder. I don't mm. I don't know. Okay. You know. Just curious. I don't really know all the details. But but uh, but Dave left anyway. Um, and then Joe just split the whole band up, and that gave him the opportunity. I think to um, so I, I don't know if he. I'm I can't speak for Joe, but. Uh, mm-hmm. But it seemed like, you know, it gave him the opportunity to change. I don't think he really knew what he was going to do. He did that He did that jazz album to... I mean, he was going to do that jazz album as a live thing, not not an album, hmm. um, just to break things up and get him away from what he was doing. And the record company said, well, why don't you record it? So so he, so he recorded it and hmm. made an album, and it turned out to be successful. I mean, yeah. you know, people like Joe, they're just... Some people are like that. They're just whatever they turn their hand to, mm-hmm. people go, that's great. Let's yeah. do it. It works. So, you know, yeah. Joe was lucky. I don't know if it's luck or talent or whatever, but, you know, it worked for Joe. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, so Joe went on on and on forward. He didn't use the guitar player for a Stepping Out album. Mm-hmm. You know, he just changed it completely. Um <clears throat> It was it was it was okay. We didn't we didn't fall out over it or anything. But um you know, I mean I think Joe is a really great musician. I mean he's he's worlds he's far better than I am, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like I mean, I was just a punk guitar player that was kind of around at the time and, you know, it was he obviously felt I was the best man for the for the job at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean I'm not I'm not in their league, you know. Mm. <laughs> I'm I'm just, you know, I'm, um, so I think he was looking for bigger and better things, so he went on to bigger and better things, and um, huh. and and I just um, I just carried on doing what I do. You know? Huh. That sounds uh, that that pain that hurts me a little bit to reduce your talent to that. I I prefer. I hope that he was just looking for something different, not better. You know what I mean? But who who am I to say? I don't know. Um, when he did finally bring Vinny Zumo on, I hope that's how you say his last name, on the Body and Soul album. Yeah. He was, you know, it was no longer, it was this kind of Latin-y feel, downtown New York sort of vibe, not the punky stuff that you were on. When you listen to that stuff, were you thinking, I could have done that? Or are you thinking, uh, yeah, it's best that I'm not there. He's moved on. I don't know. I never gave it a thought. I'd never really listened to the to the album. Oh. So I didn't follow him. I, uh, you know, you get to sort of, you know, it all seeps through yeah. eventually and you listen back and go, oh, okay, you're right. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, I, I didn't actually, I know you listen to a lot of music by the sound of it, like, you uh-huh. know, hearing some of your podcasts. I mean, I'm not really one for listening to music. I've always been a player. I'm always out playing. I'm, I'm always gigging. Huh. Uh, well, up until about five years ago, when I got trouble with my um, my left arm, it's probably oh. from gigging so much. But wow. but uh, but uh, I I don't listen to much music. I just prefer to play it. Yeah, you know. So um, okay, you could probably roll off loads of things that happened, and I wouldn't know what you're talking <laughs> about. But I didn't. I didn't That's follow. Great. I didn't follow Joe's career. Yeah. You know, okay. he went on his way. I just sort of. As I said, I just carried on doing what yeah. I was doing. Okay. I mean, I was like, I was lucky enough. I mean, uh, because of A and M, they were very good. They sort of offered me up for for a few other artists, you know. And yeah. um, eventually, I hooked up with um, Joe Nama Trading. Yeah, they first I... they first put me up for uh, 
Brian Adams. They oh, sent me first to, um, really? to play with Brian Adams, yeah. And I met Brian Adams and I went along to the studio. But but he was looking for a very slick sort of uh, yeah. sort of rock guitar player. And there was just me with my AC30 and, you know, like sort of being a bit punky and all that. And um, it, we realized that it wasn't going to work because I wasn't slick enough. <laughs> wow. And he, so, he settled on Keith Scott who uh, they still work right. together. I had him on the show last year. Wow. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. I love Keith. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you about Joan. I I hate to admit it. Joan is someone who I have the utmost respect for, but I don't, her music's never quite done it for me, you know? Right. And, right. Um, but that seemed like, was that sort of your next gig? You know, like, okay, well, Joe's over and I'm on to Joan arbitrating now and that's going to, keep me employed and keep me busy for a couple of years is that how this yeah. works okay yeah yeah that's that's what what happened i mean um as i said a and m were very good they were sort of trying they would put me out there we did, it didn't click with uh, brian adams but with joan we did there, there was that big reggae kind of mm-hmm. uh feel that we had in common and she wanted a she wanted a bit more edge to her music obviously because music had changed around that time mm-hmm. i think once again i can't speak for her but you know right. either that or she was on a low budget and she wanted some cheaper musicians <laughs> but uh yeah i mean um we we hit it off really well joan joan was a really lovely lovely character a lovely person and um you know we we hit it off i got to play with sly dunbar and robbie shakespeare on that album nice We did a few checks. We had a good jam. You know, we just we just worked. It, it okay. was it was good. it was a, it was so different though. I mean, yeah. I was I was so used to sort of jumping around on stage and being very energetic and yeah. and wild, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, calm down. Yeah. You know, don't <laughs> don't jump. Imagine. Be still. You know, right. it's like, oh, okay. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. But it was a challenge. You know, it's like I always look to myself as a you know, just you know, a regular guitar player. Yeah. Um, nothing great. You know, I just I just stepped into the right place at the right time. I happened to be there, and then to be playing with Joan Armour Trading was like, okay, right now this yeah. is serious. You know, you got to step up your level a bit here and uh-huh. and um, get serious. And uh, I think I did it. You know, we uh-huh. we did we did the album, we did the tour. She asked me to do the next album, which I did. She asked me to do the next tour, but I I turned that down because. 
I had a little band swimming to France in London and, and I'm, as I said, I'm not, I've never been one for sort of, I don't care if, you know, yeah. about limelight or money or anything like that. So yeah, I, I was really happy with my little band in London. So I just stayed there. Nothing happened, but, you know, yeah. I chose that. But, but the time with Joan Armatrangham was really good. I mean, she was, a, we really got on well. Okay. Musically on and off stage, you know. Okay. So the band that you stayed back for is called Swimming to France? Yeah. I've never yeah, yeah. I've never heard of them or anything like that. Did you ever no, put out never, an album? No. Well, if this is, it's, the funny thing is, the stuff is up there now on um, on, YouTube? YouTube, um, on um, Spotify and oh okay and all that. Uh, we recorded for for Charlie Gillett um, over records. Huh. Have you ever ever heard of Charlie Gillett? No, I don't know if I have. He was a radio DJ amongst other things, mm. and and he, and he had a little record company. We recorded for him. It wasn't released at the time, but then after he died, apparently, um, somebody must have pulled up all his recordings. I don't really know. I've just been made aware of it just very fairly recently. Mm. And and it seems that somebody's just put all our stuff out there, that mm. all the recordings we did that weren't released at the time, they're all out there now. So Swimming to France is, 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 is up there. Huh. So then when you get the call for the reunion in the early 2000s, what is yeah. that like? I mean, had you guys stayed in touch all that time or was it completely out of the blue? Uh, well, I mean, we'd stay friends, you know, but we weren't, I mean, it was not like we hung out together or anything, yeah. but we, we didn't fall out or anything, as I said. So okay. um, it was just Dave's wedding. We all met up at Dave's wedding. Mm. He, got, he got remarried somewhere around 2000, I think, you know, um, mm -hmm. And we met up then, and I don't know if Joe got the idea from then, from that reunion or huh. what. I don't know what it was. I mean, I'd kind of stopped touring. I really wasn't looking for big gigs or anything like that. I was happy at home, you know, doing what I've always done. And right. uh, then Joe sort of just broached the subject, you know, and I thought, uh, do I really want to go on tour? And I thought, well... Yeah, I mean, it'd be really nice to, to go, you know, to go back yeah. and do that, some of the old stuff. And, and you know, I enjoyed playing with Dave and Graham, so it was really good. So I thought, yeah, okay, all right, let's, okay. let's give it a go, <laughs> you know. 
I uh, I like that album a lot too. Take It Like a Man is a great song. There's a bunch of great songs on that album. But... I like that it's the first track because it sounds like, hey, remember us? It sounds like the band that you know coming back together like no time yeah. has passed, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I did I did kind of think that Joe had tried to write for us again, you yeah. know? And that was like Awkward Age and Take Like a Man were the two tracks that really yeah. got somewhere near what we used to do. But the favorite track for me, I think, is is fairy dust mm, good one you know, like, yeah so different it was like it's in 5-4 for a start yeah and um it was like so hard to do <laughs> i can't play in 3-4 let alone 5-4 but, you know, but we um we, we we you know but after a while i just started to love that that track it was really good good um yeah i mean take take like a man awkward age they they were okay still alive i really liked mm. Turn my insides out, but that's alright. 
that was, that was kind of a almost a bit because um, really at heart I mean I, I know I'm sort of a bit of a punky player but be- before that I was I was a young hippie and and still alive was a bit had a bit of like hippie psychedelic mm. vibe to it mm-hmm. it was like really mm-hmm. really good I really like that okay and um, I want to uh, I got to ask you something I've always wanted to know I saw you guys at the Fillmore in San Francisco on that tour okay and yeah. the Afterlife album that you know was a live document includes songs recorded at that show, but doesn't say which ones they are. Do you at do you have any idea what songs on the Afterlife album would have been recorded at the Fillmore concert that I was at? No. <laughs> oh no. man, I was hoping somebody would have an answer to that. No, no, no. no. I I'd even forgotten about that album. I you know. Oh. I, yeah, like. I've n- no idea, to be honest. Um, oh, man. I'd even forgotten that, was, that that album came out. Yeah. Know? Oh, it's so I, good. You'd have to you'd have to speak to Graham or Dave or someone like that. that yeah. Who probably, yeah. Who probably know everything about I every hope. gig, yeah. probably. I don't. In fact, I was going to ask, do you know, what is it about Graham and their relationship that Graham sticks around for everything, you know? Well, they were in bands together before. They were in mm. Edward Bear, I think. Um, um, Graham is like, you know, when you when I first got to know Joe, I mean, Graham was there. Graham okay. was always there. Okay. And he's carried carried on through. Th- obviously, I mean, Graham is a great bass player. Obviously, so uh-huh. they've been great good friends. So I suppose you know what else can you ask for? You know. Yeah. Um, friendship and great musicianship. Okay. That sort of, that carries on through someone's career is probably um, uh, worth its weight in gold. I would yeah. say, you know. Yeah, so, yeah you they're know. perfect for each other. Really, Graham's a, yeah. Graham is very good at um, putting Joe's vision out there. You know. I want to ask you what the best thing about working with Joe Jackson is. The best thing about working with Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to answer that really. Okay. You know, okay. it's just, it was just another, another person that I worked with. I suppose I don't. Okay. I don't know. He, he was. He was good. You know. I mean, it was good. Yeah. But it was just. It was because it was my first. That that you were young and mm-hmm. it all suddenly happened. Mm-hmm. The two two and a half years I was with him was mm-hmm. magical. In as much as all of a sudden you were in New York and you were, you know, we were playing to to big venues and, mm-hmm. you know, well, I mean, not that I'm. I I worried whether I was playing a small venue or a big venue, but it was just when something like that happens to you, it's you know it's um, it's just you know it's a magical time, obviously. Yeah. yeah. To be to be on tour, to be making records, you know, it was yeah. it's really good. Okay. And I suppose that's really it's like your first love, really. You know, yeah. You just sort of the the always stays with you, you know. When I look back now and I look at videos like I do occasionally, I think we were really quite good, uh-huh. you know, like <laughs> like some of those you know live shows. And yeah. I think, bloody hell, I don't remember having that energy or jumping around <laughs> as much as I did. You know, it's like I, I definitely couldn't do that now. Yeah, but uh, I was with the Aztec Camera live band for um. Oh, nice! I didn't know that. I love that. I, you know, I was just with the live band. Obviously, uh-huh. Roddy did all the recordings. But but Roddy uh, Roddy's music was um, so much deeper for me, mm. and we we um, I really did love 
love playing in uh, Aztec Camera, the, the 10 years that I spent with them. Just something special for me yeah. that time. Joe was special because it was the first time ever you got out there and did it, and it was all like, you know, you went from playing Irish pubs to, to uh -huh. playing... <laughs> You know, Hammersmith Odeon or something yeah. like that. You know, it was like I had no idea. I I love uh, Aztec Camera, and I had no idea that you had anything to do with them. Can you tell me an Aztec Camera story? Is there anything that jumps to mind? When I first got offered the gig, and um, he, it was the Love album that was, you know, where Summer in the City was um, yeah. the, the big number, and it was all kind of fairly straightforward, and then. He said, you know, okay, you know, you, you've got the gig, you know, here's, we, you need to go back and listen to my early stuff. I, I had no idea what it was like. Mm -hmm. I went back and listened to his, the early stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's so complicated. Oh, and really? Like, some of the chords were like, what is he playing here? <laughs> you know, I couldn't work it out. So I actually had to, to phone him up and say, Roddy, look, you're going to have to show me what, what these chords are. <laughs> And so I ran over to his house and um, and he said, well, yeah, well, what do you want to know? You know, so I said, well, what, no, what are the chords to this song or that song? And he said, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they're called. And I said, what? And he so he showed me these shapes and he said, I don't know what they're called, you know, because he's I mean, he's a brilliant musician, but he wasn't trained like Joe. So mm -hmm. he didn't know what chords he was playing. He just knew mm -hmm. they sounded right. Oh, wow. And uh, so, so we sat down and for an hour and went through all these, all his early stuff of his first two albums, and uh, and he just had to show me what the, all these chords were, you know. So um, yeah, that was I suppose that's uh, what, ah. what sticks in my mind about about as that camera and Roddy, you know. I have and, no uh, idea. And things like you know you'd be jamming it, you'd be jamming in um, a sound check, you know, the bands, and Roddy would just walk up. I remember this one time in in particular, and. Um, he didn't look at any guitar. He didn't ask what key we were in. He just sort of just started jamming hmm. sort of like out of the blue. And he was like dead in key and he just played everything so perfectly. You know, he was yeah. just an amazing musician, you know. Yeah. He's really good. I'm just realizing you, uh, you have a knack, I guess, for supporting very singular kind of almost domineering artists, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ian well, and Joe, uh, I'd put them in a similar boat, you know? Yeah, yeah, Joe and I'm a trading... Or Roddy, um, Roddy I mean, not Roddy. Yeah, no, I'd say, I was just saying, they're all really great songwriters. Yeah. Really great, you know, music. I've been I've been so blessed in, the, in, in that respect, you know, of working with such great people. Wow. Yeah. You know? And the other person I worked with was Kirsten McCall. I didn't know that uh, either. No way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. I just did one tour with her. Um, the only tour that she ever did... Well, the first tour she ever did, she was always stage shy, mm -hmm. and and she didn't like playing live. And then Pete Lannister put a band together around her, and we did um, an American tour, and it had uh, uh, Dave Ruffy and Sex Jennings from um, the Ruts yeah. as rhythm section, and we had a that was a really really good band too. Mm -hmm. But we did we did about four or five weeks tour and as i said that was the first major time the first time that she'd actually done a tour as such she'd done the odd mm -hmm. gig here and there uh that was 95 in 95 okay um, wow yeah so that was an experience too so i've worked with some really really wow. good people 
Wow. You know? Uh, speaking of working with good people, we need to talk about your daughter. I believe you guys put out a song recently called State of Grace. Tell us about uh, it. State of Mind. Or State of Mind, I'm sorry. Yes, State of Mind, yeah. got a studio now in my my house where I live now the first time ever I've had a little studio so I've just been messing around with tracks you know just mm-hmm. sort of playing around not for any not with any agenda or anything but uh I just did this track I just started it off and I thought and I wanted Ellie Rose to sing on it so I just called her over and within five minutes she'd come up with the idea of these lyrics and melody and I mean, we recorded her vocals, and she wrote the song and recorded it within an hour. Oh my god! You know, she just knocked it off like really quickly. I mean, I had the backing track, yeah, already, you know, yeah. Um, and she knocked it off really quickly, and I just thought, oh, this is magical. So, I hadn't really put anything out there before, but I thought I'm going to have to put this out there. Yeah. So that was me just putting my head above the parapet, really, just do things for the love at home really sure okay but uh, i thought i think i I thought i'd just have to put this out there ellie rose is um a great singer she's got a great voice yeah it's really kind of smoky you know she's dabbling she's dabbling in the music business you know she should do more really she should she should be mega famous but um you know maybe she will i hope she will yeah yeah you guys sound great and that's that song is fantastic uh for any i got it wrong state of mind and uh, yeah go check it out it's really good um yeah okay last question you you've alluded to this many times that you know you don't care about fame or money or any of those things i do have to ask though someone like you who's been sort of a journeyman musician for 40 years i mean like how do you make a living today gary what how do you pay your bills what do you do <laughs> you know when I, I, downtime? Don't know. I, I don't know it's one of those things where I don't know how I ever did. I, huh. you know, I mean, I just worked. I, I've always played. I've been a teacher. I've, I've taught guitar since I was eighteen. Okay. You know, I used to work teaching London schools, just help people, teach, talk people. Just, it's hard to know. It's like I, I'm sixty-four now, and I look back and I think, how the hell did I survive? <laughs> I know that. I mean, I probably earned more money not touring than I did touring. Huh. You know? Wow. <laughs> you know, um, and I didn't earn, earn a lot then, but uh, I'm I'm just one of the lucky ones. I've just got good karma, I suppose. Yeah. You know, I've been very lucky. I don't ask for a lot. I mean, right. I don't, I don't, I never, you know. I mean, just as long as I've got 
my basic needs. I've been happy. So Good. I don't, I don't never really cared. Yeah. You know, and, does, um, does and, your wife work? Life, uh, well, my current, I'm not married at the moment. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. She works better. I didn't know if that factored into it or anything. I've got a flat that I bought a long time ago. So I've got a bit uh-huh. of, um, I read that out now. So I've, I've, I have a bit of income from that. Okay. Um, which, which helps, but it's, you know, it's meager really. It's, yeah. uh, I mean, I've never, never got any royalties from any, any albums I've been on. I've, you know, I never got royalties or anything. So really, oh, yeah. Man. So, uh, you know, I mean, even on the Joan Armour trading out, um, tour, I ended up owing her 400 quid at the end of the tour. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. No, I know. Well, my wife at the time, um, we, I took her, I, we, we, the, the, the tour was split into two halves and in the middle of the tour, she was going to stay in, well, we, we stayed in uh, Hawaii Ah. Um, break up the tour and she said well I can either fly you home or you can have a free holiday in Hawaii so I said well I'll fly my wife out to Hawaii and that cost so much money because you had to fly (laughs) I had to fly her to Canada and then down to Hawaii so it cost so much money so at the end of the tour um, the accountant said uh, well actually (laughs) actually before the end of the tour, he said, you know, you've got no more money coming to you. You owe us about 400 quid. And we still had the Japan leg to, to, oh. to do. So so I went to, I bought a big bag of muesli and, <laughs> in Australia and took it to Japan. And I lived on muesli, apart from the the gigs where, um, where you got food on uh-huh. the, day, the uh-huh. big day. So, but I had no money to, to, to go out and eat. Um, that's the best in, in Japan. So I was, I was, <laughs> you know, so, but then, oh, that's you know. the best. I love it. Well, good. <laughs> well, uh, Gary, I, I love so much of the music that you've put out in this world. Thank you for your artistry and for your talent and everything. I'm so grateful you talked to me. Your music means a great deal to me. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. I'm glad, glad, um, I'm glad. I'm, yeah. you know, made one person happy. That's great. You did. Very happy. <laughs> um, okay. All right. There you have it. Gary Sanford. Now, as I mentioned, after Gary leaves the band, Joe, well, I should say Joe dissolves that band. He goes on, he does Jump and Jive, which is the jazz album. And then he does Night and Day. Night and Day is his commercial breakthrough. That album is a, is a masterpiece, but it doesn't feature any guitars. So after Night and Day, he decides he wants to start getting a band back together, and he puts out Body and Soul. And that's when Vinny Zumo comes in, our next guest. Now, Vinny was around for most of the 80s. The Body and Soul album, Willpower, uh, Big World, up until the soundtrack work like Tucker, and then up until Blaze of Glory. And then that's when Vinny's tenure ends with the band. Now, Vinny is still a very, very active musician. In fact, I would recommend that you follow all three of these guys on Facebook, but especially Vinny, he's very active out there with the music that he's still working on and the the various projects that he does. (laughs) Talk about personalities. Vinny is so different from Gary, so different. But yet, Vinny's a fantastic musician too. And his contributions to that period of Joe's career are totally valuable. 
So anyway, this song right here, You Can't Get What You Want Till You Know What You Want, was probably the biggest hit of this section of Joe's career that featured Vinny, okay? So anyway, let's hear from Vinny about his experience in the band. He called, he called me from New York City. Did you have to audition to come and play with Joe? How did you even get on his radar? Uh, well, Ed Rinesdale was in the Night and Day band, okay. and we had done a lot of work together. So he told Joe, he says, look, I know this guitar player. He's a little different than other guitar players. He has a wider range. He does a lot of different things. I think you'd like him for the band because he was really anti-guitar. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we got together and played a few of the tunes that would be on Body and Soul. And actually, the funny, funny anecdote. I'm setting up my gear, and I, you know, I'm a guitar player. I have a fuzz tone. We all have fuzz tones. I have thousands of them. And I turn it on to make sure everything's working, and it really a gnarly sound. He goes, do you hear that sound? I say, yeah, he says, I don't ever want to hear that sound. Said, okay. <laughs> Joe said that? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of knew where we were headed. And then we started playing um, Can't Get What You Want, and I played that little rhythm lick, mm -hmm. you know, the little funk lick. I just played it the first time we played it through, and it stayed. We just mm -hmm. kept that. And wow. he heard did something different, and he liked what he heard. And we went out to dinner, me, him, and Ed, and talked about the group. He asked me what I wanted to do and show, you know, what my mm -hmm. were, what my goals were. And it kind of worked out. We hit it off. We actually wow. became very friendly as well, too. The three of us were pretty inseparable on the road. That is wild. So how does yeah. one become friendly with Joe Jackson? Because other than Graham, maybe I'm trying to think of like what of what his long-standing relationships might be. He just and I'm not I don't I don't know the man at all, but he's he seems picky. He seems like somebody whose muse takes him in all different directions, and so he's not necessarily loyal to one band. It's always you know for the cause of the vision of the creative artistic vision. How does one become a friend of Joe Jackson's? Good question. I have to really think about this pretty carefully. I don't really know. Okay. And I'm sure uh, of the status now between him, Yeah. frankly. I'm not going to get into why, but okay. I don't know. I like him. I like his music. I've always liked playing it. And I just don't see that happening in the future. I would go in a second, I'd play with him, but I don't see it happening on his end. I just saw him in concert about a year ago, almost exactly. And um, he still sounds fantastic. And I have every Joe Jackson album. In fact, Body and Soul is my favorite Joe Jackson album. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I, I never hear that. Interesting. Usually it's, uh, what's the one that everyone loves? The three-piece one. Uh, the um, three -piece. I can't even remember. Night and Day? No the one before? No, no, no. The one after Body and Soul. It was just me, Rick Ford, and Gary Burke, and Joe. Is that Big World? Yeah. How could I forget that? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was a lot going on then. Uh, during that, or right before that, I had gotten a record deal on a and me and my wife, and Joe mm -hmm. was going to co-produce. So that right. was going on at the same time that his gig was going on. So it was a pretty heady time, you know. Yeah, yeah. We're very I full. So I don't remember a lot of it. We just worked awfully hard. I remember that. Mm -hmm. What was his thinking coming off of Night and Day? He had had success, no guitars. Was he just in in his mind thinking, I want... Because it's not, you know, Body and Soul sounds to me like a, like the follow-up, like a, 
a, fo a sensible follow-up to Night and Day. Did he think, I just want to kind of expand on the sound a little bit, and I'm going to need some guitar in here? What, what was the thinking? Did he talk to oh, you about that? I, I don't think so. I mean, okay. I don't know. I'd have to talk to Ed, and we, we don't exactly see each other these days, so mm -hmm. I don't know what the thinking was. I think Ed suggested to me, as like, look, I know you don't like guitar, but this guy out of the ballpark, as a player, he's different. Yeah. He goes to a different direction, which I do. I mean, mm -hmm. I approach music differently than most guitar players do. Mm -hmm. Probably because I don't like the instrument. I don't like the way it sounds. If I didn't play it, I'd never listen. I don't, I don't listen to any guitarists, for example. <laughs> really? I don't. What? It's fine. Yeah, it doesn't appeal to me. I like my playing. I like what I play. I admire the great players like John Schofield. You know, I'd rather hear a piano trio, a jazz mm. piano trio. It's a quirk of mine, and I think yeah. it's what keeps my playing fresh. Fascinating. You know? Wow. Uh, well, I've never I heard that before. Hours a day, so <laughs> after two to four hours, I really don't want to hear the guitar anymore. <laughs> I can see you that. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. We, I, you obviously sound like a New Yorker. I'm calling you in New York. Was Joe living in New York, too? Was the whole band right there centrally located at that time? He was here at the time, but he always keeps multiple residences, or he used to. I don't know about now. Okay. And Graham still lived in England, but okay. he would come over, you know, for projects. But okay. everybody else, yeah. In fact, the Body and Soul Band, most of us, uh, had come from Staten Island. We all grew up together. Mike Morialli, Tony Aiello, mm. and Ed. We only we knew each other very well, and I knew Gary Burke very well. But okay. I knew Gary Burke was the right guy for his gig. Yeah, what I just had a sense. That is wild. Was there um, were there were there points on Body and Soul or any of the music that you worked on with Joe, where you felt like a partner or a collaborator did he was he uh, was he open to suggestions or does it always do what i say no it was almost i always describe it as like a classical music gig in that you got the charts you learned the tunes you played them the way he wanted them played once in a while like with what you want he said i want like some kind of funk figure i don't even know if he said that or i just played it mm. but he happened to like that one but he he's not one for suggestions he'll just tell you what he wants mm. and his request guitar wise he doesn't, he doesn't know much about the instrument mm -hmm. so he'll have you jump it all over the neck which i'm stupid enough to do <laughs> instead of saying look this is too hard to do i'll just go for it and say all right mm -hmm. yeah i could do that and then like hometown that was very hard to play but i said yeah he wants that that's what he played on the piano so that's what i'm going to play on the guitar you know mm. And it was very difficult to do. Any sane guy would have said, look, let me simplify this, make this something a little more playable. But I always liked the challenge of his music. It was very challenging for a guitar player. He comes at it from a different direction. Yeah. I always found educating. I always learned from his albums. Whenever I did an album with him and played his music in depth, I came away learning a lot really? about my own playing and you know what I could get. I always said any gig is easy after his gig. Mm. If the music difficult at times and he wanted it a certain way and he works there i'm actually the same way i don't let musicians have much of a say in anything if i bring them in to play on my music yeah i'm doing a jazz oriented thing these days but i'm i'm similar so i understand where he's coming from where we differ is he would make changes last minute right before recording something i don't do that mm. i write something hear the whole song in my head 
I hear the whole arrangement before I even have words, and I just write down what I heard. Okay. That's the way I work. He's a little different. We would change tempos. He would change parts, but he always came at it from an interesting angle for me, musically. Yeah. yeah. You know, it wasn't boring, ever. Okay. Was, um, play, was being in Joe's band your primary gig or your full-time job there for, I think it was about seven years that you were working together, or were you... Were you called in? Did he call you when he needed you? You came and did something, and then you left, and then you didn't hear from him again for months, and you gigged and well, did other things. When there was an album project with a name and a tour and everything attached to it, then you were hired to be ready you know, for mm -hmm. when he wanted you, and then it was a full-time gig. But there was plenty of time to do sessions at night, you know, or when we had a day off, work on somebody's album. I did a lot of stuff. I was mm -hmm. brought in for a Eric album, Roger Daltrey. Mm -hmm. I did a few other than him. There was plenty of time because he's uh, he always structured it. He never did like six days in a row on the road. You would okay. play like three or four nights, three, four gigs, and then have a day off on the road. So we really all got to travel and see the countries and have a great time. Body Good. and Soul was great because, like I said, we were all friends mm -hmm. from childhood. So it was a really nice thing. We'd play baseball. We'd all go out to dinner. Mm-hmm. And it was okay. a good thing. It was very social, you good. know? I've had Ellen Foley on here, and um, she was involved in wow. the album, too. Have you stayed in contact with Ellen Foley at all? I've seen her in years. How is she? She's a nice person. She's a very nice person, yeah. Very nice. She, she was great. Yeah, we had a nice conversation a couple of years ago. Uh, let's talk about Big World for a minute, because there are several chapters in Joe's career where he does things normally for an album or two, and then he needs to veer off and do something very different. Out to the west, there's a trail that leads somewhere. And a call of the wild that takes some people there. Through Monument Valley to California, sun. From New Amsterdam to the way the West was won Wow, years will go by when you won't get nowhere You're cold and you're tired and you're free and you don't care You keep pushing on when your friends keep turning back And you keep building towns and laying railroad tracks Things get crazy and you have to use that gun And you wonder if this is the way the West is won But keep thinking that way and you won't get nowhere Cause you gotta write just to get where you're going to Gotta keep running, gotta be the best Gotta watch on the wild west exact way are Same you person. yeah oh, okay. oh yeah okay more so than him i'll do it within an album i don't know if you've ever heard my three swing guitar sounds of young america albums yeah but every cut is a different genre yeah and most cuts emulate an artist i'll try to recreate a song that would be an undiscovered beatles song or undiscovered beach boys song and i come very close except for the voice you know you can yeah. never capture that and you wouldn't want to mimic but I'm similar that way, only more so than him. But yeah, I understood that about him. He hears yeah. something in his head and he wants to do it, and it's different than the last project. 
Okay. So Big World is you guys, if I understand correctly, it's you guys performing, I think, in front of an audience who is yep. not allowed to clap or make any noise. Correct? Well, they were after, after the song finished. They would be told, you know, beforehand they were told mm -hmm. to not clap. And we'd have a silence for maybe like 10, 20 seconds, and then they could clap. Okay. You know. But it's <laughs> off-putting for an audience. It's a different kind of thing. It was horrifying, actually. Direct the two-track in front of a live audience. Mm. All I remember about that is when we did Hometown, having to play that very difficult intro by myself, Ooh. and then hearing from the, the uh, mobile truck, sorry, something went wrong in here. You got to do it again. again and I just make it through and they say no sorry there was an error so that was really hairy yeah I mean that that was terrifying live to two track and I, I, I didn't see the point I still don't see the point because he had uh, what he did at the warm-up gigs a few of them they brought a 24 track mobile truck and they recorded everything in 24 tracks so later the engineer and the producer would practice the moves they would have to make during the live to two track recording. Hmm. So they did it kind of backwards and I heard a couple of those 24 track tapes and they sounded amazing. It was analog, hmm. it was tape, it was fat and Big World was one of the first old digital albums I believe, or for him anyway, and the technology wasn't there yet so it was kind of tinny. Yeah. I always thought the album sounded very odd, which is weird because they had all these great live cuts on 24 track tape from a couple of gigs we did and they were fantastic mm. i wish he would release that yeah i mean that had that great sound but he had a vision that was different than what we were thinking you know musicians yeah. always want to they ne never hear exactly what the leader wants yeah they'll always want to take it somewhere else it's just the nature of the beast i could see and you that. just gotta know what a guy like that he knows exactly what he wants i always mm -hmm. respected that about him and I found it made the gig easier to do than your average thing for a guitar player is someone brings you in. Nowadays, especially, you'll play like 30 tracks on the same song. You'll leave, they'll piece it together. Mm -hmm. As he knew what he wanted, he wanted you to play it that way, and you played it. I could live with that. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's clear instruction. The other thing of the mind reading, trying to figure out what they want the guitar to sound like, that's very frustrating because mm -hmm. I can give them 30, 60, 80 tracks. I'll take it a different direction every take if yeah. they want or I'll play it exactly the same. That's kind of 
the way I'm, I've trained myself to yeah. play. Yeah, huh. That, I'm a very good um, player. I, I study a lot. Oh, I, I know. I've been watching your videos and listening oh. to your albums and stuff like that. We're going to talk about that at the end because I want to find out more about you individually. Um, as far as Big World, one song on there that, because um, I'm listening to the album again, thinking of you this time, Precious Time is, an, is a song on that album that I think you really stand out in. Joe's songs aren't always, you touched on this, they're not always guitar heavy or guitar driven, especially during this period. But right. on Precious Time, you sound great on there. Thank you. That's, you know, I always liked that one and no one ever mentioned it. Really? I always thought it was an interesting guitar part. Yeah. The song yeah. was interesting to him. Yeah. How much rehearsal had to go on? Did you guys just pl spend weeks and days and hours and months getting your set so perfect and tight that you could go in and perform it front to back perfect in one show like that? Yeah, too much, too much really? rehearsal. Yeah. But well, for me, see, I don't. I got to be very careful when I talk. I see things differently. I mm. don't like rehearsal. If I have a rehearsal with one of my bands, for example, which I don't. I found out it's counterproductive. If you have a jazz trio, other than running down the heads of the songs, the basic forms, it's really bad to solo on them in rehearsal. Mm. Because then you get to the live gig, I've generally played my better solo at the rehearsal. But he liked to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and then do a series of warm-up gigs. Mm. Mm -hmm. We did the album. By the time we did the album, I was always so bored with the material because yeah. I work better with spontaneity. I mean, mm -hmm. it's better if you bring me in. I always say, if I sit in with bands, sometimes they'll say, well, we were going to do this tune, but it's too difficult. And I'll say, no, do it. Because I have mm -hmm. perfect, my ears are very good that way. Mm -hmm. I can just play something I've never heard before and pretty much play better because I'm not thinking about it. So the more mm -hmm. we rehearse, the harder it is for me to keep the spontaneity. He rehearsed an awful lot. I don't know if he still does. And he always did these warm-up gigs, mm. which were fun because they were small clubs. Mm -hmm. You know, when it was in New York, I got to invite my friends and family. It was great to see everybody. It was a real party thing, and the music was looser that way, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. he rehearsed. I don't know how he does it now, but it was a lot of rehearsal. Huh. When uh, After Big World comes out, is he he spends the next couple of years doing some sort of 
you know, more obscure one-off albums like Willpower and the soundtrack to the Tucker movie. Are you involved in any of that so stuff? I'm on Tucker. You are? And I'm on Willpower. Oh, you are? Okay. Yeah. difficult that that was one where it was like play a note on the first fret and then jump to the 24th fret it was insane oh it, it was difficult to play in fact i'll tell you a story about that he had me and he brought in two of the top call guitar players in new york like three of us were probably the top three session guys in manhattan mm. and nobody could do it and in fact one guy who shall remain nameless who i thought was a friend Mm-hmm. went in when we were recording and told Joe, uh, if you want, I'll stay after the session and overdub Vinny's parts because he's not cutting it. Oh. But what happened is after the session, none of us were cutting it, so I stayed after and I replaced everyone's parts <laughs> because he knew if it was just me and him in the control room with the tape, he could cue me. I wasn't used to following a classical conductor. Yeah. I follow jazz conductors or Broadway conductors. But the classical thing, I believe it's a different hand motion for the downbeat, which mm-hmm. I didn't know. And it was terrifying with the full orchestra and singers there. It was very, very difficult music. And I, it was better for me to overdub it with him because he knows me that way. And I know him. We could work that way. Yeah. He could count in. But uh, it was an eye-opener. You know, I, I had yeah. no idea that was something I really needed to work on. But uh, huh. And Tucker was a ball. Really? I got most... So, yeah, I got most, we went out to England, me, Gary Burke, and Ed Rinesdale, and the rest was the Jump and Jive Band, pretty much, his horn player friends. And it was a lot of fun. We worked very closely with Francis Coppola, and mm-hmm. I got a lot of the solos because at the end of the recording, after a few days, everyone had left. I was the only one left, so I got some <laughs> guitar solos that he didn't intend to be guitar solos. Nice, nice. His uh, have, uh, chagrin. yeah. Do you have a Francis Ford Coppola story? Anything a couple. stick out? Uh, trying to see what I could say. <laughs> Very interesting guy. I mean, it was exactly what you would want with a hang with Francis Coppola. I mean, all the questions and stories about your favorite movies. Mm-hmm. It was exactly what one would wish for, hanging out with him. I bet. You know, he'd tell you these behind-the-scenes stories. And he really knew his music. Yeah. The only thing I could, I'll, I'll tell this one story. It's very funny. We had, we had this studio we went to, and before the studio, I was very fond of this uh, pita sandwich place around the corner. They had great chicken sandwiches. 
And so one day I'm in there before the session by myself eating. And all of a sudden I hear a knock on the window of the store. I look up and there's Copland. He comes running in. He goes, what is this? I said, what do you mean? He goes, this place. Should I know about this? Is this a place I should go? Is something I should know about? Is it good? It is great. He bought like four sandwiches for himself and he left. I just thought it was hysterical. He, he was a true consumer. I remember that yeah. about him. You'd be walking yeah. down the street. He'd go in a store, spend a few hundred dollars on things. Uh-huh. Well, he had the money, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why not? Uh, yeah. I liked him a lot. In fact, I worked uh, as an extra on one of his movies, and he couldn't believe it was me. And we got to talk a little and hang out. Really? It was good. What guy? Yeah. After that, I had never saw him again, but I liked him a lot. What movie were you an extra in? Uh, you know the one with the three vignettes that three different filmmakers, yeah, Woody York Allen stories. made, Coppola's daughter. Yeah, and yeah. My, I was, I wasn't in it visually. They didn't use any of my scenes, mm. but my wife is very visible in a scene wow. in front of the Russian tea room. She's holding a violin case. Okay, I haven't seen that <laughs> movie in years, but I'll look it up again. Because the the girl that had the part kept wiggling oh. and mugging for the camera. You know, so he said, you, over there, Vinny's wife, you do it. Uh, so we get a great. kick whenever we see the movie. We see Janice standing in front of the Russian <laughs> tea room holding a violin case. You know, Wild, wild. Um, okay, so in 89, finally, he kind of comes back to normal a little bit with Blaze of Glory. But I was curious, were you close enough to Joe during those years, the willpower and Tucker years and everything, where you were, did you ever get a sense from him? Was he disappointed by maybe the commercial acceptance of sort of the more obscure stuff he was doing at that time? Or do you think he's he doesn't care about that stuff and he's just fine and wants to create, doesn't care about the rest? I have no idea. Hmm. Okay. No, I never brought it up. And he's, he's tricky in conversation. I've had yeah. some great conversations with him, but it could get weird. I remember once, I think we were in Germany. And me and him were at a bar, and we had an argument over who was the better writer, him or Elvis Costello. Oh. And I said he was. Yeah. And he thought that Elvis was the better writer. <laughs> you believe it? He, I mean, that, that's the side he won. <laughs> I was like, no, I, I mean, I like uh, Elvis. Oh, I mean, I, I appreciate it, but yeah. I always, Joe was a more traditional songwriter, yeah. the forms of the tune, I, and I thought he had a good range, and I really yeah. liked his writing. But this was actually an argument we had. That is so funny. That's an average conversation with him. It's just sometimes we go... I find him very interesting. I miss talking to him, yeah. to tell you the truth, because it was oh. always very interesting. But no, in fact, after... See, after Body and Soul, he said, uh, I'm quitting pop music. I'm going to be a classical composer. And we're like, oh. oh, okay. Then all of a sudden, I get the call for Big World, you know. Yeah. Unfortunately, during Big World, I suffered problems with my ears, so that's Ooh. why I left tour, and why we kind of lost touch uh, oh. for a while. Yeah, and then uh, I was able to play again, and then I came back for uh, what's the other one? Blaze of Glory. Blaze of yes, yes. Yeah. And then after that, I didn't see. Well, we talked once in a while, but we didn't do anything until we did the Duke album together. Let me, let's talk about Blaze of Glory for a second first, because I have some questions about that, and then I want to get to the Duke. What uh, Now, my understanding is that Tom Teeley, who basically takes over for you on uh, Laughter and Lust, 
is also involved in the in the Blaze of Glory recordings. Why does he feel like he need the needs the both of you? Again, I have to stop and you think about that? this carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, I always felt mm-hmm. there wasn't enough for one guitar player. So mm-hmm. having two, I don't know. I think it was a visual thing. Like he made me play a big jazz guitar axe, mm-hmm. you know, and Tom played a rock guitar, very fleshy looking instrument. And he liked the contrast or something, but there were some problems. Uh, I don't like to tell tales out of school, but he started, I was told several things before that tour. I was told that I would open for him, me and my wife, hmm. and then I was told it was me. Then I was told it was me, Tom Teeley, and Joy playing on music. Then I was told it would be the three of us as a group opening for him, and then he changed his mind. And I was also told... By him, I was the lead guitarist. I would play all the solo stuff, all the stuff I'm known for, and that's kind of what I do. Hmm. And Tom was basically the rhythm player, and he was going to do some singing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time we start rehearsing for the gig, there were times, I remember at rehearsal, he did like four tunes in a row without me, and I would have to wait backstage and come out. And he'd do this during shows, the order of the tunes, it was very hard to get momentum, and then he started having Tom take the solos that I'm known for. Like every other night, he'd play one, like he'd play on What You Want or Can't Live Together, and I just said, you know, I'm known for these things. I I, I was a little upset by it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm a soloist. It's what I do by trade, but, you know, it's a gig. I did it. I kept my mouth shut. Mm -hmm. I did it, but that was the least enjoyable gig that I ever did with him because I didn't feel there was enough for two guitar players. I had no yeah. problem with Tom. Tom and me, we hit it off. We were fine. Good. I had no problem with him at all. Okay. Uh, or any, the band was very close. That was a good band. We got a good bunch of guys. We all got along. Yeah. Um, Blaze of Glory is sort of a return back to normal, you know, pop rock songs and song structure. It had uh, 19 Forever was a big hit off that, Down to London. I always think you, assuming this is you and not Tom, the song Evil Empire has some yeah, really... Yeah, that's me. That's you. That, there is some incredible like Spanish guitar going on in that song. There's a country where no one knows What's going on in the rest of the world a country where minds are closed with just a few asking questions like what do the leaders say in sessions behind closed doors and if this is the perfect way why do we need these goddamn lies this doesn't go down too well we give you everything you throw it back don't like it here you go to And I, yes, and I'm, and I was, I want to make sure I mentioned it to you because that is outstanding work on that track. That was pretty much one take. I think we punched a few notes. Again, at this stage of the game, 
I was very getting a little competitive, and I really wanted to play well. Yeah. So I made sure that that solo was going to... Well, I don't make sure of anything. I just pick up the guitar and play. Mm. I don't prepare solos ahead of time. And it was right up my alley. It was mm-hmm. the kind of thing I really liked playing on. Mm. And he kind of let me go. I think okay. he, he may have told me the first few notes he wanted, and then after that, he let me fly. And it was one of my better performances in, in this control room. I mean, I remember it distinctly. I remember finishing it and saying, wow, this is something a little above average for me. I was very mm. proud of it. That yeah. and Heart of Ice. Oh, good No one, one ever thing about that solo. I thought it was one of my finest yes. solos. Oh, I love Heart of Ice. Thank good you. Good pull, no yes. One mentions it, ever. Yes. That and that's then one take. Okay. Well, we did several takes of the tune, but I think, but I know we didn't punch anything, so that mm. was a whole solo. Oh you man. That, I, yeah. I actually wrote that down in my notes, and I skipped over it because "Heart of Ice." Yes, it's such a great song, and it builds and builds, yep. and then you get to go nuts there near the end. Great. I thought great it was song. a great song too. Yeah. I. I I didn't understand why nobody talked about it ever. I don't know. Never got any attention. I thought it was one of his most unique compositions. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Yeah, I love that tune too. Um, okay, so after after Blaze of Glory, uh, does he have a conversation with you about going a different direction or does he just not call or do you hear rumors? Well, no. He, he doesn't you guys know. have a, uh, I'm sorry, but you know, when people talk about bands or when I get interviewed it, it I get this feeling that interviewers think that we all sit around and discuss music and Joe says I want to hear your idea it's not like that it, it's a gig <laughs> you're hired to play you got to do as you're told if you don't yeah. do as you're told if you don't read the music correctly you will be replaced that's yeah. how it works in the music business it's not a band it, it's mm-hmm. not like uh, the doors or the Beatles where everybody sits and works out an arrangement Joe is a composer, and he writes arrangements, and he writes damn good ones. He's very good at it, and that's what it is. He doesn't want your input, pretty much. I remember once during Blaze of Glory, we were listening to a playback, and right at the end of a drum fill, I kind of mimed hitting a crash cymbal, 
because it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And I instinct as a producer, I'm hearing something to just, you know, you, you kind of do that sometimes. You like mm-hmm. imitate a drum part with your hands, like mm-hmm. air guitar, only air drums and the cymbal. And there was no crash there. And he goes, wow, you're right. There's no crash there. There should be. He goes, wow, you gave me input into my album. Because I know this is something that never happens. And it's laughable to think that mentioning a crash cymbal in one part of the song uh-huh. did this uh, like a, a big thing. You wow. know, because he didn't take that from anybody. He didn't really yeah. take suggestions. So I thought it was funny and a little insight into his character. That's but then again, I always liked about working with him is you knew what the gig was. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was none of this guessing and trying to come up with a sound that you thought the guy might be thinking of and they'll say, make it a little more blue, make it a little more green. I was once on a session, the guy said, it's too fast, could you take it down an octave? And I had to stifle the laughter. Octave is, is the range of the note, not the speed, <laughs> the tempo. But musicians, we just... We, oh, that's great. You know, but with Joe, he's yeah. a trained musician. His charts were beautiful because he's a trained calligrapher, music calligrapher. He has the uh, the quill pen and the inkwell and all. He really? can write. Oh, he's a beautiful notator. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Why, after 20-something years, does he think, you know who I need right now in my band for this album is Vinny? Why? I don't know. He called me one day, and I was stunned. And he said, let's get together. I have a project. Let's get together and have lunch. And we had lunch, and we talked about it, and we hit it off great. And then uh, the series of emails where we, he told me what he wanted, and he was asking some input. And he, I know he needed a guy to do, like, the drum programming and all that. And I don't know if you know this about me. I produce uh, hip-hop drum loop DVDs. No. Exactly. Wow. For British yeah, I'm very deep in the hip-hop thing for the samples. I make a lot of samples. In the middle of one now, I had one out a couple of years ago called NYC Lit, and we're doing, uh, I think it's NYC Lit too. might have another name, but mm. I like that. So I was trying to see if he would hire me to do that, but he got some guys over in Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, he brought me in. I brought a bunch of guitars. I did it. But uh, I thought I did some of my finest playing on it. Really? Yeah, I, I thought I had a few really good solos. My buddy Steve Vai was also on the album. Yeah. I was I was happy about it, but uh, nothing really much happened with it. No one's ever mentioned it to me that they liked it or my playing on it. it it's kind of tricky to tackle Duke Ellington. That that's a real yeah. sacred cow. Yeah, you know, for jazz musicians, they're not going to want what he did with it. I'm just kind of sorry now that I didn't suggest a few things that I could have done to make it really be a little different. Hmm. The, the few things I do specifically that no one else does, sound effect-wise or tonally and compositionally for background parts, that I think could have really helped the album. Okay. But I, I didn't feel like I was free to suggest anything yeah. based on my past with him. But, <laughs> hey, if he called me tomorrow, I'd... I'd do an album and a tour. I'd love to. I love playing his music. Sure. I really do. I miss it. I believe it here. What's a moment you're particularly proud of? Uh, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Okay. What good is melody? What good is music? If it ain't possessing something sweet. Absolutely. It ain't the melody. 
It ain't the music. There's something else that makes the tune complete. I'm going to start this beat again. All right. Now that's fine. All I have to add is this. And we be jamming. Yeah. Like this. Again, the solos, I think that's the only solo, actually. There was one other one where I played for a little bit, but it was very, he wanted it very sparse. I didn't really get a good blowout solo on the album. Which I think is a shame because I think it would have sent the album in a little different direction. Yeah. If he had that rather than what he did. I mean, what he did was admirable. Mm -hmm. Duke Ellington, you know, it's like rewriting the Bible, trying yeah. to arrange his music. Many have fallen on it, you know. Yeah, that's true. No one who's going to, I mean, his rock fans aren't going to want to hear it, really. Some of them will. And jazz guys are going to hate it just because mm -hmm. they don't think anyone should do it but them or I Duke. Know. I know. So it's, that's a tough room. I'm, I believe me, I'm trying to break into the jazz community in New York. Try doing that, playing a Steinberger guitar. Really? They'll look at me like from another planet, you know? <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to ask you a couple of tough questions. Number one, mm -hmm. I feel like Joe's had really bad plastic surgery over the years. And um, I feel... <laughs> I feel bad saying that because I love the guy, but I mean, do you have any, I don't know, did this begin back in the late 80s? Did, did you ever have any kind of insight as to why or, um, you know, what motivated that? No, I, I know nothing about it. I just know that when I saw him uh, for Duke, or before that, I went to see one of his shows. Mm -hmm. He looked a little different. Yeah. And... I had heard some buzzing around that he had plastic surgery, but I don't really think it's any of my business. And I don't know. It yeah. didn't happen when I was around. I didn't yeah. know anything about it. And that's a very personal thing. If he wanted to do that, that's fine with him. God mm -hmm. bless him. Yeah. I don't have to do with it. I don't know about it. No, it never happened when I was in the band. Yeah. Okay. When he wrote his autobiography, Stranger Than Fiction, he did a book signing here in Denver and did a little speech beforehand. And I went with some friends, but we got there late. And so the the thing was already happening and the crowd was full in the room, but they wouldn't let us in. But Joe was standing right next to us, getting ready to go on stage, basically. So we're standing, you know, two feet apart or whatever, waiting for him to go. And that's when I first noticed that first he was one, he was shorter than you think they all are. And secondly, that he just looked different. And, um, I wondered if you had any insight on that. Okay, last thing. I've never this is, found him to be shorter than anybody. He's pretty tall. I'm six well, I'm foot, very short, I'm six foot so. eight. I'm six yeah, foot eight, so everyone's shorter me, than me. To me, that's a giant. Yeah. I'm right. a little Italian-American guy, you know? Right, right. Um, okay, and then the last thing, and again, this is uh, this was in his book. He, If I remember correctly, near the very beginning of his book, he talks about having being sexually attracted to both men and women. And then he talks about a couple of his ex-wives. When you, was he dating anybody during the years you knew him? And was it anyone we would know? Or was it, 
did he keep that stuff private to himself? Was it a man or a woman? Did you have any insight into his? Well, when I was life? in the band, he was married okay. to a girl, a wonderful girl named Linda. In fact, we became, I don't know if we became close, but me and Janice, my wife, and Linda and Joe, we'd go out to dinner a lot. We saw each other an awful lot. Okay. Even in between the tours. I, thinking about it, it was like, yeah, we saw them like almost every week. It was like a, Linda cut our hair because she was the best I've ever encountered mm. in being able to cut hair. She was so talented. I, I was heartbroken when they got divorced because I know that would be the end of the haircuts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> she was a wonderful person. We really liked her. Okay. One day after they split up, we ran into him and her in a health food store. Oh. Same time and... It was so weird. They didn't know each other were going to be in the store. And neither one of them knew me and Janice were going to be in the store. So that was a little uh, uncomfortable, <laughs> and we kind of excused ourselves. But, uh, wow. no, as far as I knew, he was married. I had, Again, you know, you hear things mm -hmm. in the business mm -hmm. about, like, that maybe he had a thing for men as well. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about it. None of it happened when I was there. And I don't really care, and it's none of my no. business. No. You know. I agree. I'm with important. You. What's that? To me, that's about the least important thing in the world. That that's a private thing to each person, you know. I totally agree, and I would do. never mention right? anyone. Exactly. I'm I am 100 on your camp. I thought it was interesting that in his book he mentions it like in the first page or two, and then never touches on it again. Like he's dropping this sort of bomb of interesting, tantalizing information but then doesn't ever say anything more about it. And so I wondered. You know, when you think of it, it's pretty smart to say that in the beginning, yeah. and then people will want to read on. Yeah, Maybe that's true. It's that's very true. brilliant. Yeah. That's true. It was a good book. Okay. I, well, I have it. I never read it. Oh, I read it years ago. I, I should read it again. It's been probably 15, 16, 17 years ago. Um, okay. So we move on from Joe, and uh, now let's get into some of the other things you did and, and the this you know, the rest of your career. Um, I guess before I want, before I ask about some of your other collaborations, tell us, Vinny, what you do. What, what is your primary job? What's your gig? Ah, that's, that's hard to explain. Well, it's mm. all music. I don't okay. have a day gig. I mm. cyber produce for people. Artists will send me their tunes, tunes, their songs, and have me either arrange the whole rhythm section or cut a whole rhythm section. I'm good at simulating a live sounding rhythm section. Hmm. Or I'll just be hired to do some guitar cyber wise, or I play chromatic harmonica, accordion, drums, whatever, you know, the hip hop thing. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of that, and once in a while I'll do a gig with my trio. I'll put a trio together and we'll do a concert. And that's always good. I love to stretch because my playing is just improved. I play much better now than I did like 10 years ago. Wow. It's really grown into something. My guitar mm -hmm. playing is different than it was. Interesting. And I do that, and I would love to get another high-profile gig like Joe, but, you know, the business isn't what it was. Mm -hmm. Nobody buys music. I mean, I was able to sell, I have eight albums out, mm -hmm. and I was able to sell enough of them to make a living and to finance doing other ones. That is no longer the case. To do mm -hmm. it now is the labor of love. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll do it, and I get a lot of good friends that will offer to play for nothing. I'm probably the only guy who has a waiting list of drummers who'd love to play on my stuff for nothing. It's my very challenging drum-wise. Because yeah. I'm a drummer as well. Yeah. That's my second instrument. And I'm very demanding if I do want someone to play my stuff. But wow. 
doing that, and I'm trying to get established in the jazz community here, but it's, it's not easy because I play a little differently. Mm-hmm. I sound more like Charlie Parker than I do uh, West Montgomery, mm. which is what I'm trying for. I'm, yeah. I, I would love nothing better than to be like the Keith Jarrett of the p- guitar, but, you know, it's a different instrument, and I fight with that, and I still practice two to four hours a night. Wow. And I make the samples. Uh, they're not CDs anymore. Mm-hmm. They're not anything. They're just some kind of uh, internet app, I don't know, that people yeah. buy. And they're interesting. You know, there's construction kits. And I'm, I think I'm going to do a new album. I'm considering it. I just wanted to get a different direction than where I was going. Yeah. Because people were starting to get a little snarky about it. You know, the uh-huh. uh, homages to different artists. Yeah, Which I, I thought was kind of fun. But yeah. I'm I don't know if you... Oh, you've heard a few of them, right? Yeah, you sent me links, and we're going to include a link to your website or Actually, Reverb Nation or whatever in the notes for this show, so people can tap on it and look into what you're doing. But yeah, no, you I have an these... website. I, I should send you the link. I think it's the WordPress one, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the right. Yep. That's the current one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I've been looking at. Yeah, so uh, we're going to include the link on there, so people can go right to it and look up the stuff you've done. But your homages are really fun. Yeah, Thanks. there's, you know, one for every Beatle on there and there's Cream and there's a, you know, everybody else has a, has an homage. Right. It's really fascinating. There's actually more of the Beatle-y kind of thing on some other songs. I just never did videos. Listening so long ago, we always knew it was John. Hundreds of songs in the moving too fast Listening so long ago we always knew it was John He continues to stun me His words overcome I have three of them, Swing Guitar Sounds Volume 1, 2, and 3, and I have three Christmas albums. I don't know if you know about those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Retro yep. Cool Bossa Nova, two of those, one Retro Mix Bag, and then I did an album called Jazz Album, and the latest one is The Coyote. Yeah. The Coyote is interesting in that it's my solos written out for four saxophones. Wow. Yeah, so it's very different. I'll send you, I'll send you okay. one. It's a okay. very different kind of record. And some of my best, some of my most unusual recording, I would say. Wild. Different. That's great. And um, then I'm playing with different people, trying to get something happening. It's yeah. very hard now. It's hard yeah. to make a living in this business. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It sure is. It sure is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let me, to close it out, I wanted to, you mentioned some of the people you'd worked with earlier, Art Garfunkel, Sean Colvin, Roger right. Daltrey, Paul Carrick. I love all of those people. I, um, if you have a story about any one of them that you, that's on the tip of your tongue that you love to tell, please do. 
I'll tell you, uh, I'm have... a big fan of the Groove Approved album by Paul that you worked on. I think that thing is great. So talk away. Tell us whatever story well, you want. I can't really tell. No, I, can't, <laughs> I can't really tell any of the stories because none of them are particular. Art was. Art Garfunkel was one of the most wonderful people I ever met. Really? In or out of show business. Just a wonderful, warm person. Very genuine, very sincere. And very complimentary, kind of ego-free, you know. Mm-hmm. And the the microphone loves his voice. The minute he started singing, I was looking at the, I co-produced this one song. He was putting out a greatest hits package, and he had to do one new song. And I don't know if you know Mike Veneri, the great vibist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And him were like co-musical directors on this song. And when he started singing, we just looked at each other like, oh man. You know, there's just all kinds of nooks and crannies in his voice. Yeah. He's a very different kind of artist. Yeah. I just, I tried to submit some of my material to him. I had some songs I thought would really be good for him, but uh, he he went another way. I haven't seen him. I liked him a lot. Mm. Paul Carrick, that was not a good experience. Oh, why? Well, I was kind of, the story is this. They had booked Clapton to do it, Eric Clapton. Ooh. It's wow. the last minute. So the guy producing him called me for it. And I was thrilled. Who doesn't love Paul Carrick? Mm-hmm. And I was supposed to play on one tune. And then the producer liked it so much that he had me solo on like eight tunes and just keep playing and saying, oh, this mm-hmm. is great. You're going to be my new guy. You know, you're going to be my go-to guitarist, which in my experience when someone says that, that means you're never getting called again. Yeah. And it always... <laughs> And then the album came out. The only part they kept is my part on the one song I was hired for. Really? Which it's is kind of like yeah, it kind of sat wrong with me. But I, yeah. I understand he didn't want me to play on the other stuff. Yeah, it was on him, and it was his album. So oh, fair enough. Man. What song was it that you played on? Do you remember? I have no idea. Okay. I have no idea. Okay. I mean, I was in and out, and I was in the middle of something. I think we did it at night, so it, was, it wasn't the first session of the day even. Sean Colvin thing, I did at like 11 o'clock at night. I had done four sessions that day. Mm. It was just like I pulled the guitar out and played a solo. Wow. That I enjoyed doing, because I knew the guy who wrote, co-wrote the song and produced it, I knew him well, mm-hmm. and he knew enough to just let me play. Mm. And again, it was like a one-take thing. Yeah. Except we tried some chromatic harmonica stuff, which they didn't go with, because I play chromatic harmonica as well. Mm. But, uh, I mean, it, you know, it always is what it is. When you're a side man, you're a side man. Yeah. You meet some really nice people, you meet some egomaniacs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um... I was out of school, you know? No, this is... Uh, and, I, and, you know, a guy like you, your currency, your value to other people is your ability to be flexible with what they want to perform yeah. on demand and probably as you kind of touched on here, maybe even to keep some of their secrets, you know, and uh, they want to know that they're, they've got a guy on their team they can rely on in a lot of different ways, both musically and personally. And so it makes sense. Um, well, no secrets to be had other than, you know, the work relationship and mm-hmm. what goes on within that, you know, it's always hairy. Yeah. You work with these people, so close, so close. You see everybody every day at some point. You know, it's funny. I'll, I'll go to some of these Beatle chat rooms, and people will 
blame Yoko for breaking up the Beatles or yeah. blame this. And I'd say the question is not what broke them up. The question is how in hell did they stay together so long? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so difficult even to do one tour. Yeah. I can't imagine going through what they went through, sharing hotel rooms, you know, not being able to go out. It's one of the things that made them such a concise band. They breathe together because they really live together. And it's very tricky. And there's always incidences where, you know, your temper might flare or their temper might flare or someone else because you're together all the time, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And his gig is not easy. You have to really, well, it didn't used to be. I don't know if it is now. You have to really concentrate on what you're doing, especially my stuff. He knew what I could do and he would go for it with me you know he'd mm-hmm. use the full length of what i did he never held back you mm-hmm. know and the music yeah. was always very complex guitar wise i appreciated that i like that made me a better player Good. i like working with him i mean yeah he's, he's not mr warm and fuzzy but then again one day he heard it was my birthday he disappeared for a few hours he came back with a shopping bag filled with like 25 LPs, rare oh, LPs. Oh, nice. Music, uh, klezmer music, all this stuff. He knows I was very into different kinds of music, really yeah. just jamming that into my psyche. And I just and he helped get me a record deal, too. Right. No one else ever did that. Again, he made more money from it than I did, but <laughs> that's my ignorance of show business, not his fault. You know. Yeah. Well, I cool. did not know that. It was much easier to get a record deal than it was to keep it or get the yeah. record company to promote the album you actually recorded. I did not know that. Yeah, very true. That was one of the things that made Blazer Glory so tough. We had just gotten canceled by A&M. Oh, really? Yeah, they kind of dangled the opening for him, you know, to me yeah. to get me to do his group. And then last minute, that was all pulled away, and then we were dumped. Sure. So it was tricky. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, it was as music business though. Everyone's got their stories. Billy's mm-hmm. story is worse than mine, record company wise. I mean, it's amazing what some of these people will do to you. I, it you sounds know? like it. Yep, I've heard very, I've heard many variations on that exact theme right there. So yeah, but now I wonder. It's a different business. I don't think record companies have any power. Mm-mm. Or if they do, I, I don't know. Maybe if you're Beyonce, I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know it's what tough. the scene is. I just self-produce and put stuff out myself because it's what you do now. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, uh, Vinny, thanks a lot for talking with me, man. I um, no, I, I enjoyed it. I did. All right, there you have it, Vinny Zumo. Now we move into the final phase. As I mentioned in here, for whatever reason, Blaze of Glory features a couple guitarists, Vinny and our next guest, Tim Teeley. Tim comes in, plays a little bit of Blaze of Glory, sticks around for the Laughter and Lust album, 1991. That's a that's a sentimental favorite of mine, and I talk about that in here. So, Vinny's only around for that one album, but after Laughter and Lust is when Joe decides really to pack it all in and focus on uh, composing symphonies. And so most of the 90s, if you're a fan of Joe's, you know, is dedicated to him basically doing symphonic work up until Night and Day Part 2, which is at the beginning of the 2000s. Now, in addition to Laughter and Lust, Tom worked very closely with Marshall Crenshaw. And so we talk about Marshall in here. In fact, they go way back to the uh, the Beatlemania days. 
Glenn Burtnick was a part of that as well. Glenn, uh, Tom has also put out some excellent solo albums. One of them from the 80s, which we play a little bit of in here, is a blast, but it's really hard to find. A couple of the more latter-day ones are featured on Spotify, so if you want to check those out, please do, because Tom's great. Tom is a great uh, musician, and he's a great conversationalist. So anyway, here we go. This is part three of the evolution of Joe Jackson through his guitarists as collaborators, okay? Joe, uh, or I'm sorry, Tom called me also from his home in New York. So first and foremost, I mean, let's start with the obvious question. How did you become connected to Joe in the first place? So my initial uh, connection with Joe uh, professionally was in 1986. I had been a big fan since the get-go, since Look mm -hmm. Sharp. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sort of modeled a, a band that I had in New York after that particular sound. We actually tracked down the same pointy shoe down in Greenwich Village, the Denson pointed shoe mm. and, and I I had a pair of those. So I was a I was a bit I was a big fan of those those early records in particular. So in nineteen eighty three, eighty four I had uh some management because I had a, a record deal uh with A and M at the time and one of my managers, uh Barry Taylor he happened to be managing Joe at, at this point during the big world tour. Mm -hmm. the, my first opportunity to work with Joe was I, I came in in the middle of the tour because Vinny was leaving the tour for his own reasons. Mm -hmm. He needed somebody to come in fast and, and, and learn learn the show, which is what I did. I just got a phone call out of the blue from, from, from Barry. Mm asked me if I was available to come in and audition. So came in and played for Joe. Everything just, all the stars lined up. And it was very fast in theories at that point, because I think this was probably just a few weeks, maybe at the most a month shy of uh, his tour, the next leg of the tour, which started in Tokyo. And there's actually uh, a video which was going to, they were preparing to shoot. Mm -hmm. of that show mm -hmm. so that was it so i went we went into uh re rehearsals in new york city and probably rehearsed for 10 days mm -hmm. or or two weeks something like that and um but i really worked very closely off of what what Vinny had done I'm not really looking to turn anything into like my own you know mm -hmm. plant on on any of those songs Vinny's work particularly on the big world record was so fantastic it's uh it was one of the great pleasures for me to play in essentially a three-piece lineup with joe mm -hmm. like his original thing where there were no uh no other bells and whistles joe would get on the piano and the melodica or uh, and his keyboard on a few songs here and there but all that sound had to be filled by the guitar mm -hmm. so what uh i was working off of was what were recordings of, of the tour where Vinny's doing you can't get what you want till yeah. you know what you want and he's doing all the horn lines and all this and that and just his use of delays and echoes and so I really modeled pretty much very closely after what what Vinny had done okay uh, 
but the the pleasure of it was it was already laid out and i am good at sort of listening to something and being able to pick it up and filling out that much sound as a guitar player was the most fun so good. for me that was most fun musically of of the three tours that i did because it was the most uh, space yeah. for, for me to fill and i just loved loved it like crazy so, interesting so that yeah, so that was the the, the first um, thing I did. Let me ask and, you something real quick, if you don't mind. I um, I really like the live eighty to eighty six compilation album, and I mm -hmm. think you may be featured on there somewhere. But it's difficult to know which songs you are. Do you know off the top of your head? Is there a track on that CD that you're on that you're particularly proud of that we could sprinkle in right here and give people a taste of what of the space you're talking about? I, I do I do know that I'm on it, and I, I haven't looked at the playlist in a mm. while, and it's either, uh, it may be Jumpin' John. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So when yeah. you're asked to now, I want to get in to. I mean, it seems to me like originally you were planning on being your own solo artist. And I'm going to ask you about that in a minute because you've got a, a really fun solo album from the 80s that we can. I want to ask you about. But around the time that Blaze of Glory comes out, this, I think, is the first album that features you. And, right. And I was I was talking with Vinny because you're both on there. And that's not common for Joe necessarily to have two guitarists playing on the same album. Are you guys playing on the same songs or is he having you there to do things Vinny can't do and vice versa? What was the thinking there? The thinking was, uh, it was a big band album with you know, some amazing people on it. Joy Askew and you know, the, the horn section and Vinny and I were essentially playing together. So I think a song like, uh, blaze of glory. Johnny was a young boy with nothing much except a sudden kind of look in his eye. He was discovered one day, you see, he had a sudden kind of appeal for a sudden kind of guy. Who gave him some advice on what to wear. Send him out to make the young girls cry. 
And all the young boys who've been just dumb and restless Now they could identify So tell me who'll take the blame For the way things turned out Probably got a couple of guitars going simultaneously, and I think we recorded that album in in Woodstock in in Bearsville. So a lot of a lot of it is is us playing at the same time. So hmm. there wasn't like you do this and then the okay. other guy does that. Okay, uh, it wasn't like that. And you know, Vinny has his style, and I had my style. I, I my style was a, a bit more. Well, let's let's say that Vinny's style was a bit more bebop, mm. and he had, you know, and and still does extraordinary beboppy jazz kind of technique, which which I did not have. Mm-hmm. I, I've got other things. I like to play double stop guitar, multiple notes in solos, harmonizing. So that's the kind of thing that I would bring to the table. So to answer your question, yeah, we're playing at the same time, and Joe's okay. idea to sort of pull a lot of the elements from the past together in a new way and uh of course that brought uh graham maybe back into the fold on that record and graham i had worked with uh prior to that uh with with marshall crenshaw yeah where graham and i were playing guitar actually with marshall and uh chris Donato was was playing bass so i've worked with uh, graham before mm-hmm. and um i'm gonna see graham this weekend he's, he's oh. coming up to Berkshire is where, where I live. Nice. So, I love yeah. him. If you, uh, I've been trying to get him on here for a long time too. If uh, put in a good word it. for me, if Why? you don't mind. Yes, yeah. I would love Absolutely. that. Um, I will do that. Okay. Now, Laughter and Lust is one of my very favorite Joe Jackson albums. I have cool, a, cool. I have a theory that people's, if not their favorite album, sometimes their sentimental favorite album by a legacy artist like Joe is often the first one that they actually bought with their own money. Does that make sense? I, yeah, it does. Yes. It, uh, I, that applies in, in my case to all the records I grew up with. Yes. Where, yes, of course you have a super sentimental attachment to something that was your first yes. purchase or the first thing you heard. Yes, that's it. Yeah. It may not be the artist's best or whatever, but it's the one that means the most to you because that's the one where you really committed emotionally. And so Laughter and Lust is that album for me. And uh, of all the Joe Jackson albums, that's probably the one I've played the most. There are so many fantastic songs on there, but I want to ask you specifically about the cover of Fleetwood Mac's Oh Well. Talk to God, I know he'll understand. He says, stick by me, I'll be your guiding hand. 
It's only two and a half minutes, but it's a real showcase for you. That song originally from the Fleetwood oh, yeah. Mac days with Peter Green was a blues showcase for them. So how yeah. what he Joe's not known for doing a lot of covers. Why that song? No. Was it a gift to you? What was the thinking? I really doubt Joe would have ever looked at something like I'm gonna get this to so and so. And I don't mean it in a bad way. It's just, uh, I, yeah. I think he, he he loved the track, and I always loved the track, and it was one of those tracks I heard as a young teen on FM radio in New York that was just such a cool song and such a cool riff. And in 1980, well, this were actually early 90s now for Laughter and Lust. By that point, you know, people had forgotten about it, so like Marshall Crenshaw does, Marshall likes to unearth things that people had forgotten about or sort of got lost in mm -hmm. the shuffle of deep tracks that are just extraordinarily cool uh, records and yeah. then do a cover of that. Um, and that was always uh, Marshall's way. And, and I, I think in Joe's case, that's what this was. And it's funny because I haven't listened to the recording that we did in a while. Uh, and I wasn't, expecting you to say it was a showcase for for me and my playing maybe it is I, i'll go back well, and listen to it <laughs> it's uh it's a guitar heavy so song yeah. whether it's by joe or by fleetwood mac and uh right. he's and like i said he's not known for doing a lot of covers unless it's the jump and jive album and so i just thought what wonder why he picked that song maybe he picked it because he liked it but he thought i not necessarily a gift but he thought i think my band namely tom could kill this song right now you know i don't know well, that's, that's for sure yeah he'll, he'll do it knowing he's got the lineup for it yeah and um and that as well was another just big band so he had a lot for what he could do on that yeah on tour so yeah maybe that that was his thinking uh, on that one um and i don't presume to really know what anybody thinks other than mm -hmm. myself but uh yeah that's, okay uh, it's a it's a it's a great track. It's so non Fleetwood Mac in yep. terms of what anybody knows of as Fleetwood Mac because it's Peter Green, right? Is that the cat? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Just curious. Oh well. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good one. Um, yeah. I remember seeing you guys. I think you were probably on Johnny Carson or something around this time. I think you performed Stranger Than Fiction, which is another right. one of my favorite songs on that album. Or maybe it was Letterman, but I feel like it was Johnny Carson. Please, mister, can you help me try to find my baby's house? It's three in the morning and the pouring rain. I can't find a house and I forgot the number, but I gotta give her these roses to relieve her pain. Don't laugh. Just tell me you've been there before. So we fight, but we fight every evening. I tell you, every morning I just love her more. And I 
are you involved at all in the creative process of these albums? Are you, is he coming to you looking for advice? Is he collaborating with you at all? Is there a moment on this album where you think I contributed that one little part right there? I think um, in the case of, and he might've done hit single as mm. well on one of those shows. Uh, I know we did Carson and um, uh, Letterman at the time. So a song like Hit Single has got a lot of chorus out, uh, guitar. two-note fills. That's the kind of stuff that I grew up loving. I I used to, in particular, love the guitar work of Andrew Gold, Mm. known for his work with Linda Ronstadt, but he had some incredible solo-era material himself. I love Andrew Gold. Yeah, and his his guitars were these just gorgeous, uh, somewhat clean Strat sounds that had uh incredible sustain unending sustain and and uh just beautiful tone so i got a lot of my inspiration from that guy and that's sort of what i would bring to a song like hit single there's a there's a run at the end mm-hmm. i think the song ends with uh, a guitar mm-hmm. thing which i remember i seem to remember coming up with so joe would would certainly say come up with something okay uh or he might have a, a sketch or something in mind, and then whenever you work with other musicians and you're musically directing them, you you got to let them sort of come up with their own take, and that's what he he was always yeah. uh, with that. Yeah, you know, he'd have a demo of something with an acoustic guitar part played on a keyboard, but of course, playing it on a keyboard, you may not be able to hit all his notes, so you got to modify it. So he was always great with stuff like that. Was it collaborative? I no, not so much. He had a very clear yeah. vision, but all, every musician, unless you're, say, in the horn section, uh, with the exception being if you're blowing a solo and you get to do what you're going to do during your solo, uh, every musician uh, got to bring to the table what they dreamed up, whether yeah. it was Graham dreaming up a bass line and us uh, sort of hashing it out in a room. And that's what I remember doing, okay. sort of hashing it out okay. in a rehearsal space, saying, "No, that that all works together." And okay. What, you know what do you? Yeah. Okay. So it, collaborative in 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 that small. In that kind of work. work. Okay. Now, laughter and lust would be the last album of sort of traditional pop songs that he would do for nearly a decade. It was all the 
classical symphonic stuff after this for a while to various degrees of success. Did you sense anything from him about getting really sick of pop music or a, a restless? I mean, he's he's known as being a restless artist. He does whatever he wants and he goes all over the place. Were you feeling yeah. that while it was happening near the end of the tour for Laughter and Lust? Is he just like, I'm so tired of pop songs? <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so. Okay. Uh, and he's he's a mercurial guy, so okay. whatever he was thinking ahead, who knows if he even had it fleshed out. And sometimes okay. it may have to do with how well an album does. If it sells well, then you keep doing it, and you, yeah. you'll see, you know, even top artists, once they reach a certain plateau, try to emulate their own work in the interest of keeping the audience happy i don't think he ever did that though uh i think he somehow carved out a niche where he could do all manner and styles of music and pull it off and and retain an audience and and retain the support of a record label yeah yeah okay. somehow he, he he did that and that's yeah I, the rule i think yeah i agree so while during this period it sounds like it's uh, let's see, I don't know, five, six, seven years or so that I, I'm assuming Joe is your primary primary responsibility or focus or maybe even source of income. I don't know. It, during right. that period, are you gigging with other people? Do you have the freedom to do that? Are you constantly, I worry about guys like you sometimes, at least back then, because you're completely, you're a slave to the whims of the artists that you're attached to. And if Joe doesn't feel like doing, uh, like he, he didn't do pop music for a decade, he's not calling. And you don't know, do I, can, is it okay for me to ask Joe if you're going to call? Uh, should I go get another job? What should I do? What What are the feelings uh, that you're having at this time? Well, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> and it is just part of being a musician yeah. to begin with who is, a working musician you make your living at it or you try and sometimes it's feast or famine if you're not if you haven't gotten up to that 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 certain tier where you don't have to worry as much i don't know if that even exists now that people are not worrying uh about this or the other thing or maintaining uh a great level of success you could worry about that if you want to mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean what i remember uh, after Big World was feeling like I had uh, I had work coming up with him. I, I'm mm -hmm. sure we had discussions uh, because it was not long. I, I think at that time I went off and I, I got other musical gigs. I worked the next year I was working like an oldies like arena show mm. with and I was with Tommy James. Yeah, I was uh a Shondell, I guess you'd say, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I'd known Tommy for a few years. So, uh, you know, I was just trying to find continued work. And then while I was working with Tommy, then Joe, you know, reappeared and said, we got to, we're going to get go in the studio and let's yeah. do another album. And, and I was invited into that. So then, you know, I, I moved from one thing to the next at okay. that point. And then I think at a certain point uh, after, uh, either Blaze of Glory or Laughter and Lust was completed recording. There might have been a lag in 
in terms of when the tour was going to begin. So I think he retained us during that period so we wouldn't go off and get another job because mm. particularly Laughter and Lust was designed around playing the album live first and then recording it. That's what uh, I think to remember we did a club tour where we, we had rehearsed of new material. Then we did a tour of clubs. Mm-hmm. And after that, then we went in the studio because we had mm-hmm. sort of gotten used to playing playing the material. And then after the album was done, you know, the tour was set whenever it was. Mm-hmm. But everybody sort of was retained during that period, so we wouldn't go off and get other work. Okay. But the whole concept was, let's, <laughs> yeah. these are the people who are going to be out on the big tour. So, yep. Okay. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, that was the end of my uh, working with, with, with Joe, and he went on to other things, and now, you know, he's, uh, boy, and I, I went and played on something, and I, I uh, was it the, what was the album about the Deadly Sins? Was it Seven, is that the name of the album? Um, <laughs> I mean, um, and it was, yeah, or, orchestrated bunch of, Oh yeah, yeah. Um, heaven and hell. Sorry. Yes, yes, heaven and hell. Yeah. Um, and I went in and played on something, and and I remember it it, it didn't click, and yeah. uh, and then after that, I think Steve Vai went in and did something uh-huh. on that record <laughs> right. and did some good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so he's he's pretty good. Yeah. You know. Uh huh. And uh, and that was that was the last time I worked with with joe mm-hmm. and uh you know i I'm, I'm friendly with a lot of the people who work with him now uh teddy kumpel he comes up to the berkshires and plays uh at an establishment that i'm connected with my family owns and operates mm. uh, a music venue here in the berkshires called the barn the Egermont barn so teddy's come up and played a lot um and joy askew has come up and performed as well so Joe, I really lost touch with until a couple of years ago. I saw him at uh, Graham Maybe's wedding oh. in, in New York, and it was it, it was great seeing Joe. Good. It had just been a long time. Yeah. Good. So there's no there's no tension that you're aware of between the two of you no. or anything. Oh, absolutely not. Okay. And uh, you know, again, any more than you know between any. any yeah. Look, you know, all is fair game. He's sure. he's it's it's his show, it's his music, and he wants to work with different people. Mm-hmm. And God, I say, good luck to everybody, man. Everybody yeah. who whoever gets the gig, uh, whatever if it's a good gig or whoever gets the hit song or whatever, you know, Godspeed, man. You yeah. know, everybody wants to break, and I I wish everybody well. So yeah, I've never okay, wired up. Um, I've asked the other guys this, and I don't know that anyone's really come up with a you know a solid answer. Maybe you won't either. What is it about Graham that makes him the constant? As Joe, you know, fluctuates between moods and band members and muses and whatever, it seems like he always wants Graham there by his side. What is it about Graham or their relationship that makes him feel that way? Do you know? Uh. I would assume, and because I, I I talk to Graham about uh, Joe, you know, we like to talk together. So they okay. they were you know young guys uh, 
trying to do something. So they have that. It's it's almost like a brotherly thing. I'm I'm gonna uh, sort of project that on there. That's my own word for it. Okay. Um, and so obviously there's that history and that that comfort level. But Graham is he's one of the great he's one of the great bass players too. Yes, so I think oh, he just knows what is going to work for Joe. And uh, you know he's got many different styles and techniques you know the stuff on those early records i know graham has talked about it was sort of foreign to him it was playing with a pick it was getting a clanky mm. sound, something that he he hadn't done but um you know they sort of developed that together and then graham's just got a lot of uh styles and techniques and he can kind of do anything okay uh, on so i think joe just loves working with graham yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, Sounds like everybody people. does. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Okay. Well, let's talk about the other facets of your career. I um, I can't decide if I want to touch on your solo career or Marshall. Let's talk about Marshall first because sure. I love Marshall. And it yeah. you co-wrote one of my favorite Marshall songs, Better Back Off. fact that's one of my yeah. favorite Marshall albums and I love it because it's a little harder and rockier than yeah. some of his other stuff I love everything he does but that album is kind of an outlier and I think it's special so um does your relationship with Marshall go back to the Beatlemania days what's the story there it does go back to Beatlemania that's where we met okay and Marshall I was based out of the New York uh Broadway uh cast of of the show so i uh i had a great time being a broadway performer this is 1978 79 around then and the show was doing very well and they were expanding their cast so i i came in as an expansion of the show the original cast opened the show and then they needed more people so i came in and i was in the third group of of beetle guys mm -hmm. And I forget what uh, Marshall, I think, was in the fifth group that they hired. And they were hired essentially to go out on on tour and do the uh, bus and truck version of Beatlemania. So I didn't have a lot of contact during the Beatlemania years because we were in different places. But uh, we knew each other. And it wasn't really until after he 
left the show and the, and the New York show had closed and he just started to have extraordinary success mm-hmm. uh, based out of the New York area that we all started to get, get to know each other. And um, I had a New York based sort of new wave band called the Metro men at the time. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we would go to each other's shows and, but Marshall, his thing really took off. And yeah. so it was, it was during that era that I, I got to know him a little better. And um, after his uh, thing took off, I guess it took off in 1982. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put a year on it, what mm-hmm. I remember. Mm-hmm. And it was very exciting for everybody, again, because everybody's supportive of one another and we're all friendly to ha- see somebody going on TV as themselves and sure. just doing it, you know? Yeah. And maybe a year after that, I I got my uh, record deal going. Yeah. And sort of the the feeling of, of that that era. And this was after I uh, left the band that I was in, and I did my own solo thing. And you know, for me, it, it didn't end up as as happily as as Marshall's did. You know, I had just sort of a changeover in some of the players at the record label. So after. I recorded a second album, which never got released. Oh, shoot. Yeah. So uh, as of a certain point in 1985, so uh, I I didn't have my deal anymore. Uh That's when I got a call from Marshall who said, and I remember him saying that he had had a dream (laughs) that he had two acoustic guitar players up on stage uh, playing and of course doing you know a big version a bigger version of what he had already been doing uh-huh. cool rock buddy holly hillbilly thing you know yeah. whatever you want to call it. right because it's unique he's got his unique yep. thing and um so i was i was that phone call as well was was graham maybe and he had i think he'd worked with graham uh-huh. or he just always wanted to work with graham and he had his 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 brother Robert and Chris Donato were um, still his band. So Chris was on bass. So it was an excuse to say, let's, let's get Graham in the band. So Graham and I were then ended up uh, playing uh, in, in that, on that tour. Okay. Uh, The album was downtown. Yes. That album. Yes. Good Uh, album. A really good album. Now uh, the, the album prior to that, um, Field Day. I had, yeah, Field Day. I have really fond memories uh, of of going down and hanging out for for late night sessions at, at, at the studio because it was always sort of a, a gathering and it had a a great party atmosphere. That album and Steve Lillywhite, who was mm-hmm. my favorite producer of the day, so that was yes. kind of kind of thrilling to and you know I, I sang on a couple of tracks. I don't remember what, just because it was just the fun of the moment of just hey guys go in and uh let's yeah flesh out some background parts um so i i guess you could say we that was the first thing we we did where i i did anything musically with marshall um but he, w- he would come to my apartment with his four track tapes and i remember mixing uh mixing things down because he, he needed a four track machine some great demos i don't know if they ever were released they might have been put out okay uh I gotta dig those out, um, but uh, those those were great 
great times. I have a yeah. really fond memory of that. Um, so, you know, cut to a few years later, I had uh, moved. I still had a place in New York City, but I had moved to Woodstock and was, I, I fell in love with Woodstock, New York, mm-hmm. working up there where uh, with with Joe Jackson in Bearsville uh, and Dreamland mm-hmm. and was, was living up there. And then incidentally, Marshall moved into the neighborhood too. Yeah. Uh, and he was living in a house that was owned by um, Michael Lang, the, uh, oh. you know, the Woodstock uh-huh. uh, creator. Yeah. And um, so he was in that house and I was just a few miles away and we just decided let's, let's try to write songs. We hadn't done that. Yeah. So that's where better back off and don't disappear now. Yes. Uh, came from uh, just being in, in Woodstock and it was just a nice relaxed time. There's a certain appeal to danger and pain When she whispered those words I said, what's your name? Right then I knew in my heart That we shouldn't start But there you go But she messed up my mind She looked so fine I just had to I think I played on that album that those are on. I, okay. Boy. Life's too short. Yeah. <laughs> Certain they're getting hazy. Man. I get it. I get it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm guessing with your Beatlemania connection, you probably know Glenn Burtnick too. I sure do. Yeah. I know, know Glenn pretty well. We're, you know, in t- and like every every year or two, it's like we get, we get to catch up. Great uh, on the phone, and uh, yeah, Glenn is a great talent. He's got he's got so many things going on right now. Yeah, uh, he's a busy guy. So yeah, I love I love his work. He's yeah. written uh, some of my favorite songs. I do too. I Marshall and Glenn have both been on here before, and so that's kind of fun that we're completing a little trifecta here, having you on as well. Um, I love oh, both yeah. those guys. Fantastic. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, let's talk for just a minute. I want to get into your solo career, specifically Tales of Glamour and Distress. That album is a lot of fun. I got to admit, it's rare. I haven't heard every bit of it, but in getting ready to talk to you, I discovered it and heard some songs. A Rocket and a Roman Candle has a really funny video. If anyone wants to go look that up on the YouTubes. Um, were you, you know, how did it feel when, you know, when the solo career didn't take off, I assume that was the original plan, you know, that you were going to be your own Marshall Crenshaw and out there doing your own thing. And then it didn't happen. And luckily you were able to work with really talented people like Marshall and Joe, but um, you know, how did that feel? Well, look, you know, being, being a, a creative, being a creator, a writer, 
or a performer or whatever it is, you you got to remain flexible. So for me, it hasn't always been about that I need to be sort of the recording star or the the star of a uh, you know star performer. Uh, there are many aspects to it. So uh, I never stopped being a, a creator of of recorded music. Yeah. And and I continue to this day, and I'm and I'm still doing production. So for me, that moment was an opportunity, and like a lot of people of of that that day, and some people may have had one hit, some people might have had just something that just sort of bubbled up a bit, mm-hmm. like I did. Um, yeah, it's it's disappointing when the pieces sort of come apart, uh, which is what happened in my case. And you just keep going on. And then yeah. I get, you know, calls as, uh, you know, a, a writer or a singer or a jingle singer or whatever different things I've done over the years. And I, I'm just happy when I'm making a livelihood out yeah. of being a musician. And, of course, everybody, particularly I think of my generation, anybody who saw uh, the, the the Beatles era happened, got it in their head that, okay, if, if I've got any talent, and even if you didn't have talent, mm-hmm. you just wanted to jump in the game, uh, that you were going to be the one who, who does it. You're going to yeah. be the exception to the rule. And there are a lot of artists, there are a lot of people uh, like me who just, you, you, make an, you make one album, you make two albums, you know, Glenn Burtnick was on A&M at the same time, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's put out music on his own. I've put out a couple of things on my own after the fact. Mm-hmm. Those, yeah, but we all know those days, man, those days of the big record deal and the big advances yeah. is uh, a, a really old model. So yeah. that doesn't exist anymore anyway. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, there is a certain reality check that that happens if it doesn't uh go down that road and of course yes i will admit that at that point you really want to be that person you want to get to that uh that high tier of mm-hmm. success mm-hmm. um if for uh creative reasons and also you want to make the big bucks and all of that yeah for me it was always about it was always about the creativity always about music and that's the only reason I ever did it. So okay. uh, it was never something I would stop. I was ever going to stop right. doing, you okay. know, or dreaming about, or or uh, creating, yeah, and scheming like what kind of uh, you know great piece can I come up with? Yeah. So okay. and, and that story continues. Yeah. 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 For anyone who's interested, um, I would recommend checking out a couple of other of Tom's other solo albums, Eleventh Hour and Worm. They're both on Spotify. They're very diverse, and they really showcase a lot of your guitar playing and your singing and your songwriting. And so if people want to go down a Tom Teeley rabbit hole, that's the place to start, I would say. Um, you mentioned being uh, employed. Have you always been able to make a living in music somehow, basically, for 40 years or so now? Yes, and I, I say that with a caveat that, uh, you know, it's, Sometimes it 
you know, lean. You have lean eras during that. But I don't really have any other great skill set other than (laughs) the ability to make music, to, uh, you know, perform and produce. So that's what I... So my vision and my dream for that has remained clear because I really... It's my one option. It's something that occurred to me really early in life when my parents would say have something to fall back on right you know, go to go to school and get this or that now my pig-headed youthful mind said no i don't want something to fall back on because then i probably will fall back on it yeah um so that sort of has kept me going for better or for worse and mm-hmm. sometimes it, yeah it would be convenient to have something else another source of income when uh you know there's there's not a lot happening yeah but i've you know i've I've done it all these years and it's what i'm gonna keep doing good and uh i continue on and on good um i believe and i'll be honest tom i there's uh i always pride myself on the amount of research i do to get ready for these and you're someone that uh you don't have a website necessarily so it's or like a wikipedia page or something so there's not one place to find a lot of information but i believe for a while there, or maybe even today, you you play in a Beatles tribute band. Is that a primary gig for you? Is that um, you know? Does that take up the most most of your time? Where does that fall in all of this? Again, that's a it's a specialized uh, skill set that is an easy bicycle for me to hop on uh, when when I what I uh, have been doing over the last uh, few years is working a symphony show, which is called Classical Mystery Tour, which is uh, it's a delight in terms of doing it. It's 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 way more than a, a, a tribute show, mm-hmm. in that it's a full throttle, you know, symphony uh, experience for for the audience, and we get to play with uh, some of the top orchestras in Very in cool. the if not if not the world. Um, and like I said, that's that's one revenue stream for me. So I do that because okay. I can, because I still love it, and it's a big wave that you get to ride on every time you get up if you do it well uh, because people they want to be enthralled they want to hear it recreated and we deliver that and uh you know you never get tired of you know two thousand people standing up (laughs) tired of that that's great Um, yeah yeah i love it um now i did you have you worked closely with alice cooper if I look you up on allmusic.com, I see some Alice Cooper on here. I I wrote one track. For, you did uh, on the Trash track. album, right? On the Trash album, yeah. Uh, and I I got to work with Alice and and Desmond was the producer Desmond Childs, and we I so I went in as a vocalist as well after okay. uh, they picked up. Uh, this track called This Maniac's in Love With You, which I I co-wrote with uh, another New York writer. I used to be so in control But
I'm thinking, well, who, who the hell is ever going to do this song? But it was a cool song. Yeah. And, and the only person who would have picked it up did pick it up, and that was that was Alice Cooper. So eventually he also became a co-writer. They wanted some more lyrics, so yeah. we sat down. So, uh, yeah, so we did uh, that record in, I think, 1989. Yeah. And uh, I'm singing on it, and I, I threw some things at him after that. But that was that was the one that that stuck. Okay, very yeah. cool. Wow, so much diversity. I mean, Joe Marshall, Tommy James, and Alice Cooper are all on your resume. That's insane. You know, I I I I wrote some good stuff with Tommy as well in the in the mid '80s, which um, I know he he put out some independently released stuff. But uh, man, I I like I like those songs. I was a big fan of his. Mm-hmm. Late '60s records. I thought they were really cool. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. I we try to touch on some of the business side of some of this. As I, as I'm thinking about it, Trash, the Alice Cooper album, is the most successful th- album, at least in terms of sales, that you worked on that I can see on this list. Did that provide the biggest mailbox money for you? The biggest mailbox money I got. Uh, yeah, in terms of an album, yeah, I, I did a couple of, uh, I sang on a couple of jingle campaigns that were, mm. man, that was the business to yeah. be in, in in late 80s, if you could be a jingle singer. I never got a real strong foothold in it, but I did a couple of big ads, and that was my one of my fond memories. Tell uh, me one. I've had about literally, literally mailbox money, where you'd just go, and there'd be a stack of Blue and white envelopes oh, from so talent nice. partners, and yeah. that was always great. And it's like Christmas I, every week. I've had but, a few no, people on here that did that. In fact, I had uh, Pepe Castro, who back in the day yeah. was in the Blue Blues Magoos and Balance, and he was—he's one of the voices I, doing oh. the. You probably know him. He's one of the voices doing the ooze on that famous Clydesdale Christmas commercial, the beer right. commercial, and he said, yeah. "I made bank for ten years off of that thing." Just by doing ooze, you know. That's right. That those were the contracts, and that was before everybody had their own, uh, you know, recording system on their laptop. Yeah. And uh, there was just so much money being thrown around in advertising that it's like, yeah, let's get all these singers in. Then, then people began to get a lot more um, uh, protective of those singing contracts. So eventually, it it, it died out uh, yeah. in the way. Uh, it was at that time where people had beepers and they would uh-huh. get calls to go do the next jingle. And uh, if you were a real working jingle singer, you'd get three or four calls a day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, um, but, uh, yeah, I had a buddy who I, I still work with who was in uh, the Metro men guy named Robert Miller, okay. who's a great composer. He did a series of, uh, be all that you can be, which was was the army, and I right. sang on those. And those, if you were around then, you probably remember how they go. But that was that, for better or for worse, it was the, the army. That's yeah. uh, it's fun. I was thinking that exact one because another person I've had on here is John Fiore, and I believe he sang that campaign as well. Maybe do you I know think, John? Yes, yes. I think he was in that in that same group. I think he was. It, <laughs> yeah, wild. They were us gather around, and we all knew this is going to be good. This is going to yeah. be a good payday. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. I love these stories. That's great. 
Um, okay, yeah. last last little bit I want to ask you about. Did I see correctly? Were you and uh, Peggy Sue got married? Yes, and and actually, let me uh, amend my story about Marshall when he uh, called and said, "I have this dream of a band with two guitar players." That was the first thing he had lined up. Was that he had gotten a call from uh, the film producers for the, and it was Coppola directed it, yeah. and Kathleen Turner, Nicholas Cage, mm-hmm. and he said, "And and we have this call for this." this this movie gig and this will be the first thing we do together so that was the very uh first thing we did with that band and i actually played uh keyboard in uh that lineup for for the movie and we were part of a high school reunion scene yeah uh you'll see at the beginning of the movie where all the characters sort of come together okay and uh so that was that was our first uh time with that lineup Wow. was on guitar i played piano and we had a great time that That's was classic fantastic i um i saw that movie in the theater and i don't think i've seen it since and i remember thinking at the time whatever nicholas cage is doing it's so weird and so annoying and doesn't seem to fit in this I, movie now he's a great I, actor and i love him and everything else but that movie was bugging me he, he was out there and yeah it was a strange performance but uh, we got to meet and hang out with a lot of people who were just up and coming. You know, Jim Carrey was in the movie yep. as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember telling people about him. I said, there's, there's this guy that, you know, just made such an impression on me. Yeah. And uh, so, and there were a number of other actors who are escaping me now who, sure. who sort of went on to bigger and better things Yeah. Uh, after that movie. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, la- okay. Last question. I, um, you know, you've had a long career. You've done, you've seen all facets of this business and been able to do all kinds of creative things. When you look back on your career, do you have a favorite story? Is there a thing that you just, you love to think about or people would be shocked if they heard? And it could be related to Joe or Marshall or neither. It could be whatever. But what, when you look back on your career, what's the thing where you're just like, that was the best? I'll never forget that. <laughs> oh man, um, that's a really good question. I, you know, I, I, I don't know if there's a particular crazy story. What, what happens with me, and uh, I, I find it funny. I'll, I'll talk to whether it's my my kids. I've got I've got two grown kids, and they'll be talking about Elton John, let's say. Mm. And I'll suddenly remember, and, uh, oh, well, let me tell you a story about, you know, standing in a lobby and Mm. Elton John coming over and and, uh, hanging out for a few minutes. Uh, And this has happened to me a number of times where I sort of forget, you forget who you've come in contact with Uh until somebody's talking about somebody in a certain context. And you realize, wait a minute, I've got something to share about it. Yeah. And it may not be an interesting story. It may just be, well, you know, actually, yeah, we, I, I got to smoke a cigarette with Stevie Ray Vaughan or something on, mm-hmm. the, on a bus stop with, with Marshall <laughs> and talking to a young guitarist who's that's his hero. And yeah. he's saying, did, did you shake his hand? I said, yeah, I shook his hand. Uh, just stuff like that. Or, yeah. um, uh, and a lot of these things you tend to forget about. 
uh, until they come up and you realize this is this has been a good ride. You know, yeah. there have been a lot of great and interesting moments. And, uh, you know, I might not have made a million dollars at it, but it's it's been great. And it's been an honor to ha- have done what I've done to work yeah. with the people that I've worked with and to come in contact with, you know, a lot of great, uh, brilliant people. Good. So Good. That's, that's how I'll answer your question. Good. I love it. Um, well, t- Tom, you've done, you're behind so much music that matters to me. So thank you for everything that you've done. And thanks for talking with me, not just about Joe, but just about everything. I really love it. Thank you. Absolutely. You're so welcome, John. Thank you for reaching out. You bet. All right, there you have it, Tom Teeley. You can tell three very different personalities, three very great musicians, interesting people who view this whole experience very differently. But you can tell there's some similarities in their experience as it relates to Joe and what he's like to work with. Anyway, all this music is fantastic. If you aren't really a Joe fan, this episode probably didn't mean anything to you. But if you are, or even if you're on the fence, I hope that you were reminded or heard a bunch of great music that you that uh, that you love because there is so much, so much richness in what Joe has put out there. And through the aid of these guys right here. And please go check out everything else they do. Because they had careers outside of Joe. Joe's just one part. And so we try to cover those years as well. So give them all their due, please. Now, I want to close it out with a song. This is 19 Forever off of Blaze of Glory. And I feel like Blaze of Glory kind of got the short shrift. I don't think we talked about it quite as much as we should have. But this song was, I don't know, probably the biggest hit off that album. It's That album is great and this song is excellent. And I don't know who plays on it, Tom or Vinny or both, but they do a fantastic job. Now, next week we are keeping the Joe train going because next week's guest is his longtime collaborator and bassist, Graham Maybe. Graham Maybe is one of the best bassists ever and he's been there the entire time through all these different phases. He's also done a bunch of other things as well. That conversation is fantastic and it is so interesting. So I hope you will come back for that one as well because Graham is amazing. Now guys, you got to give it up to Yan the Man Makevich because this episode, as you can imagine, was a ton of work to put together. He did it all. So huge thanks and big love to Yan the Man for all the hard work he puts into these things. It's not easy, folks. There was a lot of cutting, a lot of producing, a lot of songs here and there, a lot of trimming it up. He takes great pride in his work, and he made it sound as good as it did. So give love to Yan, please. He deserves it. If you're new to this, go back into our archives. Look for other guests that may pique your interest. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page on there. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And there should be more bonus material coming out this week because we still have a lot of it laying around, okay? So anyway, thanks, folks. We love you.